0: The Pinkertons, turns out they are not just characters in the increasingly popular and very addictive game, Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, Founded by Scottish immigrant Alan Pinkerton, Chicago's first police detective in 1850, the Pinkerton Agency quickly became one of the most important crime detection and law enforcement groups in the United States. By the early 1870s, the agency had uh, the world's largest collection of mugshots, built its own criminal database. During the height of its existence, the Pinkertons actually had more agents than the standing army of the United States of America, causing the state of Ohio to outlaw the agency due to the possibility of it being hired out as a private army or militia. That's some serious shit. On their three-story Chicago building headquarters, their logo, a black and white eye, claimed we never sleep. This was the origin of the term private eye. The Pinkertons were often hired by the government to perform many of the same duties that are now regularly assigned to the Secret Service, the FBI, and the CIA. The agency also worked for the railroads and overland stage companies, playing an active role in chasing down a number of Wild West outlaws, including Jesse James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get them bandits, Pinkertons. Get them good. And today, we suck not only into them, but we also have an overview of the evolution of global law enforcement that led to the formation of the Pinkertons. You learn amongst uh, a lot of other facts and uh, interesting bits of trivia that it wasn't all that long ago that you had no one to call when something bad went down. Today is indeed better than yesterday in so, so many ways. The world's first detective agency explored and examined today on a cops and robbers edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Triple M, and praise Bojangles. He's a good boy. I'm Dan Cummins, great lord of the suck, the master sucker, voice of Nimrod, praiser of the one-eyed, three-legged good boy Bojangles, and so many other nicknames you wonderful meat sacks send in each and every week. You're listening to Time Suck, recording in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, in the Suck Dungeon. Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley, make it sound so sweet. Uh, prepared to confuse and agitate office neighbors once again with strange and occasionally horrific screams. Uh, let's get smarter today, suckers. Let's know more about our world in a few hours than we do right now. Let's passionately explore this wonderfully complex and fascinating planet of ours. Can I get a hallelujah meat sacks? Amen. Amen to knowledge. Amen to the glory of whatever God or moral or scientific code makes you the best that you can be. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Today's Time stuck is brought to you by Jim Jeffries Show Podcast. The Jim Jeffries Show on Comedy Central covers the uh, most controversial issues of today, shares them with you, all filtered through Jim's distinctive brand of comedy and edgy and intelligent global point of view. And the Jim Jeffries Show Podcast offers even more of that point of view, and it's even more unfiltered. Listen each week as Jim Jeffries and co-host and fellow comic Forrest Shaw sit down with friends, guests to discuss news, politics. All the things Jim couldn't, wouldn't, and shouldn't say on TV. Uh, So subscribe now to the Jim Jeffries Show podcast. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday on your favorite podcast app. Time Suck also brought to you today by the War and Conquest podcast. I like it. War, exciting. Conquest, who doesn't like to conquer? I'm interested. Uh, War and Conquest, hosted by fellow Time Sucker, Neil Eckert. Uh, It's a weekly series that spends multiple weeks on a specific civilization to give a well-rounded look at the who, what, when, where, and how. Uh, Weekly, roughly 30-minute episodes on Alexander the Great, the Conquest of uh, Canaan, the First Crusade, the future series on the Crusader States, and the Third Crusade. Uh, War and Conquest is currently transitioning from First Crusade and Crusader State period And Neil doesn't fuck around with these thoroughly researched episodes. He touches on often overlooked aspects of these major wars that are missed by condensed, broad brush historical uh, depiction. And uh, there is some historical humor, but it's not a historical comedy show. More of a look at some of the absurd events that happen in these wars. Like uh, uh, if you want some examples, how about an entire army circumcising themselves in the middle of a war? What the fuck? Uh, I don't know if there's ever a great time to be circumcised, but I would think that uh, the middle of battle would be one of the worst times to do that. Uh, Or how about two drunk uh, Macedonians almost capturing an entire city by themselves? Just these two. How how fun would it be to take over a city with your buddy and even more fun to do it when you're both hammered? Although Neil does say almost, so I'm guessing it didn't end well for those guys. Uh, How about making a child a high priest of Poseidon because he claims to talk to dolphins? Uh huh. Past is weird. Neil also uses tons of movie and pop culture references to attempt to explain ancient warfare. So, time suckers, uh, give time sucker Neil his podcast "War and Conquest" a chance. Listen, subscribe, and learn today. All right, some uh, some news for the uh, for the time suck community. After after many months of work, the dream team of the Queen, Axis Apparel, uh, Danger Brain Man, they have brought to life another set of amazing designs from those sweet bastards over at Danger Brain. Man, hop on over to the Time Suck store, feast your eyes on some incredible new shit. The overall theme of this, this winter merch line, inspired by the Donner Party's fight for survival, humanity's constant quest for knowledge, it is the coolest shit we've done so far. Lindsay truly has been working on this for months and months, way more than you would ever suspect uh, for, for some merch. We we are doing some interesting stuff this time. So uh, even if you don't want to buy anything, I know we just you know had the sale. If you're like, man, I just bought some shit Not right now, just check it out just to look at it. It's, uh, if you just want to peruse for the, for the entertainment value, uh, go to the Shopify store, give it a peek. I'm so, I'm so proud of it. I've been so excited for a while now. Uh, greeting cards on the stand up side for all you long-term fans. Finally, my messed up greeting cards are going to be, uh, available in physical form. It's been a long, like a decade, long time coming, uh, sold in packages to eight. Find your favorite cards for your favorite people. Uh, curious, which I uh, once made the cut. Well, uh, here, here's some hints. Revenge is near. Happy Veterans Day, happy Secretary's Day, and a lot more. Designed by longtime friend of the podcast and artist Reese Bank. We also have beer glasses now as well. These are fucking so cool. Uh, Sold as a set of four. These glasses resemble a beer can with a top cut off as far as kind of shape. Uh, Clear glass, four different designs etched on each glass. Uh, Cool packaging. Get yourself a set to suck down your favorite libation. Field notes and pencils. This is completely, I would have never thought of this, but I'm so glad we're doing this. Uh, we have our own notebook, and it's the coolest notebook I have ever seen in my life. Uh, pocket-sized notebooks for all your note-taking needs. Includes two time suck pencils. Uh, we got time suck socks because why not? Want to have some sweet socks? Get cozy while listening to suck. One pair for everybody. One pair only for the space lizards. Uh, camo windbreakers. Layer up those hoodies with some sweet-looking windbreakers. Enamel pins. I know that's very. Those are very popular collectibles for some people. Uh, you guys have been asking for over a year for these. We finally got them. Uh, this is going to be the first set of pins in a, in a series of pins that will, you know, it'll take a long time to get them all out. I'm sure well over a year or two, uh, we'll start with Nimrod and also a nod to the winter collection sold in a set of two. And this is the weirdest thing. Well, Chikatilo's summer, uh, summer backpack kit might be the weirdest thing we've done still, but this is close because now we have prayer candles. I shit you not. <laughs> uh, we have these awesome looking prayer candles because nothing says cult like an altar of fire and brimstone. Uh, you can collect them all. Limited edition prayer candles featuring some of our favorite characters like Nimrod, Lucifina, uh, Chikatilo Moore. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a space lizard one for just the space lizards. Yeah, that's and, and two of the, of the coolest t-shirts we've done so far too. Uh, we opted only this time to do a unisex fit. Uh, the women's shirts, even the new longer kind of boyfriend looser fit just don't, don't really sell that well. That's okay. We're shifting back to the unisex t-shirts. Uh, one shirt's navy heather. The other is charcoal heather. And uh, just check out the designs. It's hard to, to describe them properly, but they just look like, like if I didn't listen to the podcast, didn't care about podcasts, I, I would just see them and be like, oh, those are just cool shirts. Um, yeah, one little kind of bit of trivia about one is the coordinates on this uh, one shirt. And you'll see when you look are are uh, the uh, latitude and longitude coordinates for hell, for hell Norway. So hell is Fina. Uh, so find out what exotic animal parts have gone into these products. Check it all out in the store. Uh, too many to go into detail now. We got to get to the Pinkertons. And thanks for buying our stuff. Uh, thank you very much. It's just cool to see it out in the world, see the stickers out in the world. So much fun. I, I'm just having a blast with it. Um, and uh, yeah, and sometimes on, on the prices, just so you know too, on, on a few items you're like, oh man, that's a little bit high. We really are not doing crazy profit margins. It's uh, we, we actually make this stuff. Rather than have it print to order, we, we have to order it. And when you're not doing giant orders of thousands of things, uh, it just costs a lot more per unit. And then, um, and then also we have that, you know, 20% space lizard discount that spacers get when they sign in for five bucks a month to kind of account for, because we want them, those ones we don't, we don't, you know, make much, but we, we have to, we have to not lose money after that discount. So, so that's, uh, that's why the price point, I, but we, yeah, we don't, we do that. We make money because of your subscriptions and the ad revenue. And honestly, the merch is kind of a wash. Uh, when it's all said and done, but it's a fantastic wash because we get to see that stuff out in the world. And it makes my heart so happy. Uh, all right, real quick, uh, just one more tour date for the year to announce. St. Louis, December 6th to the 9th. Last stand-up shows of 2019. Uh, hope they're as much fun as Spokane was uh, just this past weekend. As I'm recording this this past Friday uh, after the Thursday show, and it was awesome. Hopefully an indication of the rest of the shows for the weekend, which, which uh, two out of the three are already sold out. Hoping the third one is best Spokane shows I'm hoping I've ever had. The first one was the best Thursday show I've ever had for sure. Uh, next show in the uh, in the area is a TED Talk. Doing that TED Talk in Coeur d'Alene at the Croc Center Theater, Saturday, January 12th. Link to that in the episode description as well. And uh, yeah, and the only thing I want to say before you in the episode, because you can see it on YouTube. Yes, I did get a new tattoo, part of a sleeve I've been waiting for years to have made. I found the guy that I want to do, this guy, Caleb. I- I'm hoping he's going to do the whole thing at uh, Call of the Wild, here in Coeur and Man, I think he did a good job on this forearm. Uh, this is a little uh, yin and yang thing. Fetus, death, this big skull there. Some space imagery because it's going to be a whole space theme kind of all over the arm to match. But, yeah, I'm excited. All right, and I'm excited about today. So let's get to sucking. It's Pinker time, motherfuckers. I think I said Pinker time. I did mean Pinkerton time. I didn't... <laughs> Pinker Pinker time sounds shady. If you're like, ah, it's Pinker time. You're like, ah, I don't want anything on my butt. Get it, get away from me. Or maybe like, yeah, get it in there. Uh, Why did my mind go there immediately? And Pinkerton, what a weird, I mean, it's just, you know, it's the dude's last name. But what a, what a non-threatening name. Because they become very feared by a lot of outlaws in the West, especially in the uh, late 19th century. But it doesn't have that uh, like oomph, like, you know, like, like if it was the, uh, Uh, I don't know the, the, what would be a tough one? Like the, (laughs) my mind's drawing a complete blank down all tough words, but if it was just, you know, the, 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 the mayhem brothers or the assassinators, the even like regulators, which was a term for a different thing that we'll actually address here later in the show. But if like the right, something with a heart, but like Pinkertons, it's a Pinkertons. Ah, especially when you say it like that. Anyway, Alan Pinkerton established the Pinkerton Detective Agency, as I said, in Chicago in 1850. Before we jump into the timeline of Alan Pinkerton and the Pinkerton Detective Agency, I do want to talk to you for a second about vitamins. Did you know that for less than $1,000, you can buy a 31-day supply of Nutrilite, double X vitamin and mineral and and phytonutrient supplements shipped straight from Amway? And I want to talk to you about Amway. Is Amway a pyramid scheme? No, not unless you believe almost every critic of Amway. It doesn't matter because if you think about it, crystals do have power. Uh, especially Topaz, if you eat enough vitamins, you can lick phytonutrients. If you hold enough Topaz, you can see God. Not with your face eyes, but with your brain eyes. It's easy. You spin around real fast for a long time and then eventually you will throw up your vitamins. You do not drop your crystals. God always chases a herd of sky horses. So keep in mind that spinach is not a fruit. Sorry, I, uh, I tried bath salts for the first time about half an hour ago and they're really fucking kicking in. No, I'm back. Uh, What I should have said earlier was before we jump into the timeline of Alan Pinkerton and the Pinkerton Detective Agency, we will need to get a feel for the kind of evolution of law enforcement, Uh, the history of law enforcement, investigation methods, you know, to understand how this organization, an organization that is still around, uh, advanced investigation methods. Uh, Because we take police officers, I feel uh, like, you know, for granted in the modern world. Uh, Can you imagine a world without law enforcement? I actually can't. Something bad happens, you know. You call nine one one. Nine one one was the first phone number I ever learned. Someone's trying to break in your house. You call nine one one. Someone's following you in your car, threatening you. You call nine one one. You accidentally sit down on a model rocket again and get stuck in your bottom. You accidentally you call no one. You tell a friend you're having problems with your ulcers. You ask them to discreetly drive you to the ER, uh, the ER. Uh, but no, but seriously, something goes wrong. You call the police. I knew about the police uh, long before I was even in school. You know, before I was in kindergarten. Like a lot of kids, I played cops and robbers when I was little without even really understanding what a police officer was, I knew there was, you know, quote unquote, good guys. And, you know, then there was the quote unquote, bad guys and bad guys broke the laws. And they did, they took what didn't belong to them. They hurt people, they killed people. And the good guys caught the bad guys and took them away, took them to jail, locked them up so they couldn't steal or hurt or kill anybody else. Um, But, you know, for, for most of human history, no police force, as we know of it today, not even close to as we know it today, uh, existed at all. Like someone's trying to break into your house, well, better grab a stick or a sword or a gun, fend them off, or they're going to take more of your shit. Uh, Better hope there's a neighbor within hearing distance willing to help you uh, or you're on your own. That was reality for most of human history. Almost all of it, really. There were precursors to modern law enforcement and and some precursors long ago, like way back in ancient Egypt. Every time I reference Egypt on this stuff, we've never done a proper suck on it. Uh, Not Really? Uh, I'm always amazed by how advanced that civilization was so long ago. Uh, the earliest reference to organized, uh, like an organized uh, constabulary or a force or police force comes from ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics dating from the old kingdom that lasted from 2613 to 2183 BCE, long time ago. Uh, yeah, got to do more sucks on ancient Egypt, man. Uh, open air markets in ancient Egypt had a, uh, They had, they had private armed guards over 4,000 years ago, as did temples and the homes of rich landowners. Uh, it appears based on ancient images that these early guards even used, and I'm not making this up, trained monkeys to help them chase down thieves. Seriously, trained monkeys, Uh, (laughs) uh, baboons possibly, uh, maybe, maybe some chimps, but uh, yeah. Can you imagine seeing like a chimp today wearing a police uniform, riding shotgun in a squad car? Like it's just un- unfathomable to me. They actually were like, yeah, they, they would they would like have the have the you know the chimps or the baboons you know, like chase down people. Just drop the weapon, head so I can see him. <laughs> I'm I'm good, man. I dropped the gun. I'm holding still. Just tell the monkeys step pointing his gun at me. I can tell him, but he won't listen. Sergeant Bubbles does what Sergeant Bubbles wants when he wants. Uh he ate a suspect's entire face off yesterday. That's a sight I will never forget. <laughs> How's he not locked up? All right. First off, watch your language. I don't care for the F word. Second loophole. Turns out that not only can a chimpanzee officer enforce the law, uh, but they're also above the law. You can't take a chimp to court for murder or police brutality. Uh, there's just nothing on the books right now regarding law enforcement officers, you know, uh, who can carry a gun, but also who are not, you know, human. Uh, Sergeant Bubbles wants to shoot you. Well, uh, you get shot. That's fucking. I mean, I mean, freaking, That's freaking crazy, man. He touches me. I sue the city. I sue the county. You, everybody. Good luck with that. Take a number and get in line, pal. Sergeant Bubbles, how many lawsuits are uh, pending against you right now? (laughs) Over 200. (laughs) Look, dirtbag. Sergeant Bubbles has the best arrest record in county history. And the uh, the governor just signed state law saying that the rest of the police force can't be held responsible for liable, you know, anything liable for his actions. So you can sue Sergeant Bubbles for all the money and assets in the world, but we pay him mostly in fresh fruit. And he technically doesn't own anything other than that Smith & Wesson 9mm he's about to shoot you in the leg with. Ah, oh, Tommy! Oh, 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 shot me. God, monkey just shot me. You keep calling him monkey, he'll shoot you again. It's a chimp. Please, I can stop. I'll talk. I have names. I have big names. I'll, I'll give up everything. You just keep that psycho chip away from me. Ah, <laughs> oh, will be damned. You did it again, Sergeant Bubbles. You did it again. Oh, 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 ah. Yeah. Sorry, I know that went on a bit. But listen, you do not get a gift in a narrative like like monkey or chimp law enforcement officers uh, ever, ever until now. That was, I was like, what? I get to talk about monkey police? I know chimps aren't technically monkeys, but monkey's a fun word to say. Uh, and enough about chimps. Uh, by the 15th century BCE, Egypt had a, uh, an elite mil- a paramilitary force called the uh, Magi, uh, which protected the kingdom's borders and palaces. Some of you gamers may know of the Magi from uh, Assassin's Creed, Uh, The Magi elite security force evolved out of the Nubian Magi tribe from present-day Sudan, a land known 5,000 years ago to Egyptians as Magi. Originally, the term referred to an area of land, then to the people from that land, then to the security force originally composed only of people from that land. Uh, Outside of chimps and dogs, the security force was only armed with wooden staffs. Uh, which I'm sure they you know knew how to use very well. And, and while a lot isn't known about these early law enforcement officers, uh, what we do know is that they were private officers. They were mercenaries, kind of professional soldiers hired as a private security detail. So if you hired them to protect your goods, they're going to do that. Uh, they're going to stick dogs or monkeys you know, or chimps or baboons, whatever, on somebody who took your gold. They're going to take their stick. They're going to whack somebody trying to steal, you know, your fish or your scrolls or whatever. But if you're just some random common folk and someone steals your shit back then, you couldn't just run up to the Magi and uh, and tell them like, "Hey, go go get them! They stole my stuff." I mean, I guess you, I guess you could, but they're not going to give a shit. They're probably going to have one of their one of their police chimps rough you up a bit. You know, if you're like, "Please help me! Sir. Someone someone's destroyed my shack and smashed all of my house pottery." Well, it looks like they've smashed your head as well. What? My head? No, my head is fine. They, ow! Why would you bite me with a stick? Why do you bother me, peasants? You did not employ me. I'm not beholden to you. It is not my problem that your shack was smashed or that your wife's pottery destroyed or that your head is bleeding or that my baboon is about to tear you limb from limb. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it wasn't, they weren't like police officers. They weren't for everybody. These initial private law enforcement officers were uh, especially valuable, though, to merchants and royals because ancient Egypt, while it uh, didn't have police, it also had no standing army at this time. Then the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, 2040 BCE to 1782 BCE saw the creation of the first standing army under the reign of, uh, Amen, Amen, uh, Amenem, Amenemhat, Amenemhat, fucking names, uh, of the 12th dynasty. The Middle Kingdom period also saw the creation of a new formal judicial system far superior to what existed previously. Prior to the period, this period, court cases were heard by a panel of scribes and priests who would weigh the evidence, consult with each other and their God. That sounds terrible. That sounds like some, uh some Salem witch trial stuff, you know, the consultant gods, of the trial, that would suck. If you're like, uh, all right, well, you, you sound innocent to me. Uh, before I let you go, just, just let me check in with my God, Horace. Just, just real quick. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, uh, really? Ah, dang it. Oh, okay. Hey, uh, bad news. Horace thinks that you are guilty. I know there's no evidence, but he thinks that you're guilty of shoplifting. He also thinks you're guilty of a bunch of stuff that you weren't even charged with, you know, uh, like mass murder, a lot of bad stuff. So we're going to have to cut your head off. Uh, Yeah, prior to the Middle Kingdom's new set of laws, also, uh, if you were wealthy enough, you could just bribe the panel. You could just throw them enough coin to have their God just happen to rule in your favor and then walk free. Then in the Middle Kingdom, the position of an actual professional judge was created again. Egyptian, uh, you know, Egyptian culture, I'm always amazed, so advanced for so long ago. Uh, these Egyptian judges, possibly the first judges in history, although other civilizations may have had a judge or judge-like position, this wasn't recorded in written form or maybe we lost it to history. Uh, judges were men versed in the law, paid by the state, who were so amply compensated and cared for that they were considered above bribery. I doubt it, but that's what they're uh, The creation of judges also led to the development of uh, courts which required bailiffs, court scribes, court police. Not like you know regular uh, police patrol in the streets, but you know people keeping order in the court, uh, and then kind of an an early undefined form of uh, detective slash interrogator kind of investigator. Uh, the police were paid by the treasury, but apparently had a, they had a, a, a at times a supplementary income tapping into local resources. Community policing may have uh, often um, have equaled like the provisioning and appeasing of a village tyrant. More popular with well-to-do scribes to whom they were probably likely to be deferential than with the poor who had to bow to their every order. Uh, Here is some ancient Egyptian writing referencing these uh, kind of early law enforcement types. Uh, Befriend the herald of your quarter. The herald was like the law enforcement guy. Uh, Do not make him angry with you. Give him food from your house. Do not slight his request. Say to him, welcome, welcome here. No blame accrues to him who does it i got to say, this writing makes them seem like psychotic assholes. You know, just do what they say, for God's sake, just do what they say. Give them food, don't look them in the eye, be extra polite, or they will kill everyone you love. Uh, during the new kingdom of Egypt, 1570 to uh, 1069 BCE, the police force became a little more organized. The ju- judicial system as a whole reformed and developed further. Uh, there was never any occupation which corresponded totally to lawyer in ancient Egypt, but the practice of allowing witnesses to testify on behalf of the, of the accused while an officer of the court prosecuted was introduced into the Egyptian judicial system. So uh, they had the police officer type serving as prosecutors, interrogators, bailiffs. Uh, They also administered punishments. These law enforcement officers in general were responsible for enforcing both state and local laws, but there were special units trained as priests who also informed like temple protocol. Um, Yeah, Uh, punishment was pretty severe. Uh, for crimes back then, ranged from flogging to amputation of the nose or hand or even the death penalty. Amputation of the nose. We've mentioned that before when talking about medieval punishments. It always makes me cringe. Just what a motherfucker of a punishment. I mean, your nose getting chopped. That ruins that ruins your week. That ruins your year. Uh you don't get to smell anything. You don't get to taste anything. It's gonna mess up your sleep, I would imagine. You know, you're probably gonna make some weird noises when you're breathing now. Uh, it's gotta be very painful. It's got to be top three and worst pains you've ever felt. No upside. I don't feel like I doubt there's a single story out there of someone life wasn't going how they wanted it to. And then they got their nose lopped off and they're like, yeah, yeah, man, everything's kind of, uh, you know, cruising along upwards now. Now nah, one day you're poor and miserable and you got a nose. And then the next day you're more poor and more miserable and you got no nose. Uh, in, in Egyptian state courts, guilt was assumed. Innocent had to be proven beyond doubt. Excuse me. The accused were often beaten with the rod uh, if they maintained their innocence after a severe beating, they were usually set free. So justice was less about whether or not you actually did something, and more about pain tolerance. I guess that's, that's fun. I guess if you were way into uh, BDSM back then, you probably were committing crimes left and right. Just oh, I'm I'm sorry. Did I just steal that man's pottery and smash it in front of you, officer? Guess you'll just have to beat me with the rod again. Hit me like you love me, daddy. Uh, later as time went on, ancient Egypt's, uh, law enforcement and judicial system never got the chance to evolve further into a a proper modern like police force due to their civilization crumbling, but they did have something. I was surprised how, uh, how much they had, uh, and they did have, you know, uh, fairly thorough investigations again for, for the time. It's really impressive. Uh, they would round up suspects, question witnesses, investigate the crime scene, uh, even arrange reenactments to test theories about the crime. Uh, detailed records of past accusations they could check to monitor people's criminal histories. Like when a tomb, uh, was robbed during the reign of Ramses, the, the night, uh, he sent out a team of investigators to check out every other tomb in the area, just in case the thieves had broken in anywhere else. Uh, his investigative team found the tunnel that the thieves had used to break it, uh, to break in with. Uh, measured its width and length, even made educated guesses as to what tools they'd use to get in. And then they went up rounding suspects, checking the city records for people with knowledge of mining and a criminal history of robbery. And it would bring those people in and investigate them. Pretty impressive. Uh, then later they would try and beat confessions out of people, uh, which is probably not great, but they would try to make sure that the confessions they were beaten out of them matched uh, what they knew about the crime scene and other evidence. So very impressive. This is going on thousands of years ago unfortunately after that uh and pretty much uh the, the entirety of the world's history police uh investigative like you know uh, methods did not continue to evolve they just went they backslid for thousands of years until very recently uh, so th- and we'll move on to to Rome for a second to talk about that in Rome they did not continue to evolve uh, Rome did have impressive investigative uh uh you know or law enforcement kind of Methods compared to a lot of other cultures, but they weren't as good as the Egyptians. Uh, the first loose equivalents to a modern police force in ancient Rome were the Vigilis. Uh, Vigilis uh, formed during the reign of Augustus in 6 CE, and then the Cohortes or Bane uh, formed around 10 CE. So let's talk about the Vigilis first, uh, or Vigiles. vigiles ah, These fucking words. Vigiles. Ugh. The Vigilantes were formed uh, mostly to fight fires, but they did end up getting some uh, some police duties assigned to them as well, which is why I'm including them here. Rome previously had private firefighting groups, but they were just insanely corrupt. <sighs> like, this is just a funny story I thought to throw in. And I know some of this stuff is like uh, tangential kind of stories, but I just found it very interesting as I was researching. Uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus, one of Rome's all-time richest men, put together a firefighting force almost 100 years before the uh, the Vigilis, Vigilis? <sighs> but only to make money he'd offer uh, owners low prices for burning buildings and then have his team of slaves extinguish the fire so that it could be saved for redevelopment. Like, and then if the property owner refused to offer he would just let the, let the buildings burn to the ground. So I, and so I'm guessing strongly that when you're doing that, you're also probably setting the fires to get this stuff started. You know, you're not just happening to show up all the time at uh, a fire that just broke out. You know, just, uh, uh, Hey, uh, hello. What, who are you guys? Oh, hi, hi sir. We're, we're here to put out the fire. Uh, what? What fire? Uh, that uh, that that one over there, that little one near that uh, near that guy running away. Oh, the guy? What? The guy running away that looks dressed exactly like you guys? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That man, uh, Jim. I mean, uh, that, that dude we've never seen before. Uh, we're we're here to put out the fire he started. I mean, the fire he is running from. You know, just please let's put it out. Another idea to protect the city, particularly at night, was the creation of the Tresvire Nocturne. Three magistrates set on night watch. Uh, magistrate in ancient Rome being a term that could mean a variety of things over the years, like a judge, law officer, military leader, priest, et cetera. Uh, the trio's workforce was uh, workforce was composed of slaves and it was their duty to prevent any disturbances in the city. And it didn't work. Uh, it did not work. After this, some uh, some wealthy private individuals even formed their own personal fire brigades, but the fire still raged. So then years later, Augustus created the uh, Vigil Vig- S. Vigilas, I fucking hate this word so much. He created these old firefighters. I've looked at the phonetic spelling so many times the last two days. Fuck it. The V people were composed of freed men with officers. Sometimes there is information I honestly don't even want to give you guys because of one word. But I'm like, that's messed up. Some i it. But some of these words, they just, they will not. There's some part of my brain that's missing. Uh, I never took Latin because I went to Riggins, Idaho. I went to school there where they don't teach you anything. And... Uh, and during that developmental period when my brain should have been soaking up certain information, like the building blocks of certain things, they're like, ah, nope, you don't get to le- you don't get to be good at that stuff ever now. Um, it's it's like vigil. I get the word vigil, but then when you add an ES to it, I'm like vigils is what I want to say, but then the pronunciation guide says vig olis, vig vigilas, vigilas. I'm gonna call them vigils, right? Because vigils feels right for you, Roman history buffs. Just put up with it. The vigils, composed of freed men. Officers coming directly from Rome's standing army. They were organized into 7,000-man cohorts, uh, although perhaps initially only half this number, each led by an equestrian. I know that word. Tribune, know that word. High-ranking officer. Each cohort was divided into seven units led by a centurion. (laughs) Ha ha! Nailing the rest of these! Uh, (laughs) uh, Roughly the equivalent of a sergeant or maybe like a lieutenant in today's military. The position of centurion, uh, centurion, now I blew that one. God, the position of centurion, I got cocky, evolved over the years. The entire force was commanded by an equestrian prefect, the prefectus vigilum, a high-ranking military position appointed by the emperor himself. Uh, equip, I hope this is inspirational in the way where it's like, if you have trouble doing something in life, don't just give up because you're bad at it. Just keep making a fool of yourself week after week after week. And I think that's how you're supposed to live your life. I think you're supposed to just try, even though you know you'll fail. Is that is that inspiring or depressing? I'm not sure anymore. Uh, equipment uh, was prim- primitive, and the only way to uh, to contain a fire was to demolish a building, sometimes its neighbors, to prevent the blaze spreading. So the best actions the vigil's could uh, provide was to spot a fire before it really took hold. And then, if serious fire did break out, they had fire buckets, sponges, force pumps, axes, picks, ladders, grappling hooks, blankets, quite a bit of stuff, mats, vinegar. Uh, et cetera. They could douse the fire, smother it, pull down parts or, or all of the buildings, you know, to you know, prevent it from spreading. And then there were the police functions of the vigils. Uh, in addition to extinguishing fire, uh, they were the night watch of Rome. Their duties included apprehending thieves and robbers, capturing runaway slaves. Uh, they guarded the baths. That was an added duty during the reign of Alexander Severus when the baths would remain kind of open 24 hours. Uh, they dealt primarily with petty crimes, you know, look for disturbances of the peace while they patrolled the streets. And then there was the uh, Cohortes Urbane, Latin for urban cohorts, cohort meaning a military unit equal to one-tenth of a legion. And, uh, and, and they were more of Rome's kind of true police force. They were commanded by an urban prefect. Their, their primary role was to counteract roaming mobs and gangs that often haunted Rome's streets during the Republic. Uh, angry mobs. No thank you. Uh, never been around an angry mob, hoping I never experienced that. Uh, when I was 20, that sounded exciting, like an angry, riotous mob. Just like, yeah, man, it's fucking riots. Killing in the name of. Burn some cars. Let's just fucking turn everything upside down. Let's bring this whole world to its heels. Hell no, we won't go. Your government will overthrow. Hell no, we won't quit. You can eat your bullshit. That sounds great for some people when you're like 19. But now I'm like, whoa, 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 everybody. Come on, come on. I've, uh, I've, I've, I paid a lot of money for that truck. Please do, please, I love it so much. Please do not, uh, please don't smash it. Please don't overturn it. Please don't throw rocks. These windows are very expensive. Come on, you guys. We just replaced the carpet. Please don't burn my shit down. I'm trying to get my kids college fun together. Um, the urban cohorts, uh, they acted as a heavy duty police force, capable of riot control duties. While their contemporaries, the individuals police the streets. Uh, as a trained paramilitary organization, the urban cohorts could, on rare occasions, go to battle even if necessary. Uh, that role only called upon in dire situations. And uh, and prior to these groups, no actual police force in Rome. Uh, towards the end of the Republic, before the era of Rome emperors, emperors we were just talking about, criminals <laughs> truly just ran wild in the streets, you know? You want that home inv- invasion investigated? Well, get to investigating, Sherlock. No one's going to do it for you. It uh, wasn't safe. Prior to all this, to, to walk the streets without a guard, wealthy Romans would hire guards, even built their own small armies to protect their homes and families. The guards of one wealthy family often ended up uh, fighting the guards of uh, other families over insults, criminals, accusations, business territories. Um, But e- even once these uh, kind of, you know, organizations did exist, they still didn't have any detective equivalent. Like like if someone was murdered, for example, it, it would be the responsibility of the eldest male in his immediate or extended family to extract uh, whatever vengeance they felt was necessary. Uh, might be in the form of blood money. You know, the murderer's family would try to scrape together the demanded amount of money to give it to the victim's relatives. Uh, in cases where money was not desired or available, the closest male of the murdered victim would attempt to hunt down and kill the perpetrator. Uh, if your social status was high enough, you could take somebody to court, uh, but that didn't happen very often because uh, if you were granted a trial, good luck getting anyone to testify because accusers... Witnesses and defendants were routinely tortured, all of them, to ensure that they spoke the truth. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, unless they were rich or well connected, but like very rich. So, so law enforcement definitely shittier in Rome than it was in ancient Egypt. And and again, you know, just talking about to give an overview of kind of what was going on. But when we get to the Pinkertons, we'll get into more like investigative methods they they employed. And, and how they were used, none of that existed back then. And, and I doubt even in ancient Egypt, there just isn't a lot of hieroglyphics to go off of, isn't a lot of scrolls to figure this stuff out with. I highly doubt there were there were very good investigative methods. Yes, they would do reenactments and stuff, but they just didn't have any of the tools that would be at people's disposal, you know, the last few hundred years. Uh, let's move east for a second to ancient China. I feel like we don't talk about the east enough. Find out what they were up to around this time. Uh, law enforcement in ancient China was carried out by prefects, the prefecture system developed in both the Chu and Jin kingdoms of the spring and autumn period, 776-476 BCE. In Jin, dozens of prefects were spread across the state, each having limited authority and employment period. Uh, prefects were appointed by local magistrates, who in turn were appointed by the head of the state. So they did have this uh, organized system of some type of law enforcement. Usually the emperor of the dynasty would uh, you know, appoint the uh, the magistrates, who would then appoint the uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the the head of the state was uh, uh, the emperor and then would appoint the magistrates who would then appoint these prefects. And they oversaw civil administration of their prefecture or jurisdiction, and they would report to the local magistrate just as modern police report to judges. Under each prefect were then sub-prefects who helped collectively with law enforcement in the area. Some prefects were responsible for handling some type of investigative duties, uh, somewhat similar to police de- detectives. Uh, Eventually the concept of the prefecture system would then spread to uh, other Eastern cultures like Korea and Japan. Um, And I guess law enforcement in ancient China was also relatively progressive. There was female prefects, which didn't, you know, happen like in Rome, for example. And that's all the depth I'm going to go into about ancient China only because after Googling for literally two hours and not wanting to pay 60 bucks for a 24 hour use of a one time, uh, uh, like one article on an academic database I found that may or may not have given me the answers I wanted. I gave up trying to find more details. I mean, it, I'm sure if this was a if this was a suck about ancient China, like ancient Chinese law enforcement, uh, you know, whatever. You, you take the week to figure it out. But since this is about the Pinkertons, um, didn't do it. And I do think it's crazy how I can find like you know in, in a few seconds like five different carefully constructed video tutorials on how to restart the exact model of, a, of the snowblower I have, like in a very specific situation, like if the engine stalls, can't find one article after two hours uh, online about what exactly the duties of these ancient Chinese prefects were. At least not anything written in English or that I could find that could even be translated. I did find out that a Chinese physician published The Washing Away of Wrongs in 1248 CE, and that is the earliest known work in the world on pathology and death investigations. The book describes... Amongst other things, how to distinguish drowning from strangulation, uh, becoming the first recorded application of medical knowledge to the uh, solution of a crime. So clearly, investigations were going on a long time ago in China, uh, but based on what I I know about ancient feudal China with its hierarchy, you know, the aristocrats and kind of peasants divide there, I'm strongly guessing that like the other places we've already talked about, like ancient Egypt and Rome, it was, yeah, if you have a lot of money You can hire some, uh, you know, some people to do a few things on your behalf. But if you're, if you're just the average common folk, well, you know, tough shit. Uh, (laughs) So now let's head to the precursor for America's early law enforcement systems. uh, Europe in the middle ages, criminal justice in the middle ages in Europe consisted primarily of violent feuds between (laughs) accusers and the accused and payouts to families of the victims. Like we were talking about in Rome there. There was no real police force at all in the medieval period. uh, So law enforcement was in the hands of the community. So I hate this system already. I would not want to rely on my random, mostly elderly neighbors for any sort of law enforcement. Uh, after the Norman conquest of like England, uh, the Anglo-Saxon monarchy introduced the concept of the parish constable. A town officer who prevented and punished theft tended the village village stocks, you know, where people would be putting the stocks and, uh, and drove away vagrants. Vagrants, man. Go on now, vagrants. Move it along. Go, Yo, you be poor and vagranty in some other parish. If you can't afford ale, I'll throw your ass in jail. That's my motto. Kidding, kidding, we don't, we don't have a jail. Get out of my town or you'll be hanged for being a filthy vagrant. Uh, males were appointed to serve as constables in town for one year. When a constable called for aid, all men of the town would immediately respond and the call for aid would carry from town to town until the criminal was caught or the emergency ceased. And this tradition of uh, parish constables... Uh, would would last in England until 1829. The parish constable system and the hue and cry system I just described of kind of like just yelling out, hey, somebody stole something, uh, developed around most of Europe. And and check out this craziness. In former English law, uh, the cry had to be raised by 100 of the inhabitants, at least, of a parish in which a robbery had been committed if they were not to become liable themselves for damages suffered by the victim. So if somebody steals some some stuff and you don't help scream, "Ah, help, someone stole some stuff, then you're liable for the random stuff being stolen by the statute of Winchester of 1285 enacted by King Edward, the first of England, uh, provided that anyone, either a constable or a private citizen who witnessed a crime had to make hue and cry. And the hue and cry must be kept up against the fleeing criminal from town to town or from county to county until the felon is apprehended and delivered to the sheriff. All able bodied men. Upon hearing the shouts were obliged to assist in the pursuit of the criminal. It was moreover provided that, quote, the whole hundred shall be answerable for any theft or robbery, in effect, a form of collective punishment. So in the 13th century England, the equivalent of a detective was a loud community game of telephone. I, a vagrant just stole my biscuit, he did. And then just a giant succession of other people yelling, I, I, someone just stole Richard's biscuits. Richard's biscuits have been eaten, they have. Some vagrant just ate Dick's porridge. Someone just raped Dick's forest. Is that a crime, raping a forest? Richard's biscuits. Someone just raped Richard's biscuits. Stole. They stole. Someone just raped Richard's hole and ate his biscuits. Someone just raped Richard's hole and ate his dick biscuits. That filthy vagrant. But, but seriously, people just yelling, he did it. He's getting away. Closest thing, you had to detective work for most crimes in medieval England. Uh, ah, there were trials, but a lot of those trials were run by priests, you know, trying people for batshit crazy stuff like witchcraft, devil worship uh, during the Inquisitions. Uh, you know, we, we talked about that in the Joan of Arc suck it, it was a crazy time to be alive. Uh, and there was also the tradition of the Night Watch in Europe. 1252, a royal writ established a watch and ward with royal officers appointed as Shire Reeves, a.k.a. sheriffs. Uh, I thought this was cool. The word sheriff comes from the British term Shire Reeve. A Reeve was the chief magistrate in a town or district in medieval England, and a Shire was a county. So the county chief magistrate was known as the Shire Reeve, and then Shire Reeved morphed, as words do over time, into sheriff. Words, man. Fun to pull them out sometimes. Check check out the roots. Etymology. Word nerds. Unite. Um, In 1252, yeah, that royal writ regarding Shire Reeves declared, by order of the King of England and the Winchester Act mandating the watch, part four, and the King commandeth, that from henceforth all watches be made as it hath been used in past times that was to wit from the day of ascension unto the day of St. Michael, in every city, by six men at every gate, in every borough, by twelve men in every town, by six or four, according to the number of inhabitants of the town. They shall keep the watch all night, from sun setting unto sun rising, and if any stranger do pass them by them, he shall be arrested until morning, and if no suspicion be found, he shall go quit. Ah, uh, Yeah, European laws varied considerably from country to country regarding law enforcement, but in general, like most of the world until the past few years, uh, punishments were severe incarceration, relatively uncommon. I also didn't realize that, uh, until this week that kind of our, our modern day notion of, you know, capturing people and that whole, like, you know, put them in jail for life. I mean, we've heard stories about people being locked in towers, you know, like the tower of London for the rest of their days. That was exceptionally rare. Uh, jails in general were not for just detaining people for long periods of time. It was just to be used, uh, throughout almost all of human history and, and almost every culture People would just be locked away until their trial. And then usually the punishment would be, you know, something physical and something severe. And the punishment for just a lot of crimes was just death. So you'd be in jail for a little bit. And if you're guilty, okay, you're dead. Now you're dead now. Um, Yeah, using scientific means to collect and compare evidence did not become uh, widely accepted in either Europe or America until the 18th century. Uh, Metropolitan police services were established for the first time in London in 1829 that's the first uh, true full-time uniformed professional police force that existed. Uh, crazy that less than 200 years ago, the first police, in the way we think of them today, police paid by public funds, you know, taxes to protect the public, not just the rich, uh, prevent crime, apprehending criminals uh, showed up in the world. Uh, Sir Robert Peel's nine principles of policing were issued to every officer joining this brand new force. Kind of cool, man, the history of the police force here. Uh, Principle one, the basic mission for which the police exist is to prevent crime and disorder. Principle two, the ability of the police to perform their duties is dependent upon public approval of police actions. Principle three, police must secure the willing cooperation of the public in voluntary observation or observance of the law to be able to secure and maintain the respect of the public. Principle four, The degree of cooperation of the public that can be secured diminishes proportionally to the necessity of the use of physical force. Principle five, police seek and preserve public favor, not by catering to public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolute impartial service to the law. Principle six, police are to think of the common citizen as an imminent threat to the sanctity of society. Until proven otherwise, the common citizen shall be treated as a potential thief or violent offender. Show them no more kindness than you would a dog that could very well be rabid. Principle seven, uh, police at all times should maintain a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police being only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the interest of community welfare and existence. Principle eight, Police should always direct their actions strictly towards their functions and never appear to usurp the powers of the judiciary. Principle nine, the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with it. And uh, a New York City police commissioner from 1994 to 1996 and from 2014 to 2016, William Joseph Bratton, one of America's most famous law enforcement officers, claims to carry these principles around with him to this day. And I made up number six. Police are not supposed to look at the average citizen as a possibly rabid dog. Uh, the real number six is police use physical force to the extent necessary to secure observance of the law or to restore order, only when the exercise of persuasion, advice, and warning is found to be insufficient. So those, you know, those came out in, uh, you know, the, the very beginning of the or you know early nineteenth century. And prior to that, there there was no real code of conduct for uh, for law enforcement officers, not in the way we think of it today. You know, basically anywhere in the world. Uh, England didn't, didn't organize an actual detective force for criminal investigations until 1842. And uh, now that this has taken us very close to the time of Alan Pinkerton's formation of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, uh, let's look real quick at pre-Pinkerton America. We're almost there to the Pinkertons, very close. Uh, the United States inherited England's ac- an Anglo-Saxon system of social obligation, sheriffs, constables, watchmen, overall notions of justice. Uh, as American society became less rural and agriculturally rooted, more urban and industrialized, crime, riots, other public, and public disturbances uh, became more common and then a new type of law enforcement was clearly needed. However, uh, Americans were very wary of creating standing publicly funded police forces. You know, it's that whole American spirit of like, leave me alone. Uh, I got this. Oh uh, no, don't tell me what to do. Uh, among the first partially funded police uh, or public police forces established in, the, in colonial America, were the watchmen organized in Boston in 1631 and in New Amsterdam, later in New York City, or, you know, later known as New York City in, a, in 1647. And uh, and although these watchmen were paid a, a nominal fee in both Boston and New York, most officers in colonial America did not receive anything, you know, close to a salary. Uh, and, and they were just kind of paid by private citizens. So, you know, it reminds me of the ancient Egyptian private security force we talked about earlier, the Magi. You know, if you're paying them, You know, for the most part, they would keep some law and order on your behalf. But if you were, say, like an American Indian, not paying them, and someone killed you, well, the Watchmen in Boston, not going to do shit. Uh, In the frontier regions of the United States in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, justice was even looser. Uh, Vigilante justice was the norm. Uh, Those Western movies aren't lying about what was going on. Like when gold was struck in some, and I, I never really thought about this this way until this week. Like when gold was struck in some random mine claim, uh, and, a, and a town of Prospector suddenly just sprang up, it's, it's not like they had to wait for a judge and a sheriff to get there before they could have a town. You know, it's not like that was immediately assigned. And, and sometimes, you know, when a sheriff was appointed by locals, there wasn't necessarily uh, a judge anywhere near the town. There wasn't necessarily a jail uh, in areas where a formal justice system had yet to be established or, or the rudimentary kind of policing apparatus proved to be inadequate in the face of rampant crime not uncommon at all for citizens who did call themselves regulators in this, in this sense uh, to band together in committees of vigilance to combat crime and introduce order where none existed. So, you know, keep, keep hog folk from mixing with dog folk, a uh, former suck subject, Billy the kid. I forgot about this. It's been a while since we did that suck. You know, he was once a regulator. If you recall, one of the Lincoln County regulators, you know, cattle rustlers were causing problems in Lincoln County, New Mexico. So the local sheriff, which, which was, you know, could just be some dude where it's like you're good with the gun. Uh, you want to do this? All right. Your sheriff, um, he, the local sheriff just went around to some guys that he thought would be uh, efficient in helping him track down and capture some cattle rustlers who were probably gonna be shooting at him. So he wanted some people to have his back and he would just deputize them. You know, uh, a lot of those old Westerns, you know, like my favorite movie, Tombstone, they have those characters who, who are like an outlaw you know, like Doc Holliday, you know, outlaw one second and then a lawman, technically the next, uh, you know, someone could just have him quickly, quickly sworn in with some, some few words of an oath. Give them a badge, and then they could help track down somebody they may have been committing crimes with the previous week. Uh, that wasn't just Hollywood. That's that's how it was. Basically, pre-Pinkerton, uh, super-duper easy to get away with a lot of crimes in most of America, especially out West where the where the Pinkertons would end up doing a lot of business. Uh, I think about all this stuff with this uh, this new game I've been playing, that that Red Dead Redemption 2. I haven't been able to play a lot, but I play, played a little bit over the Thanksgiving break. It's an open-world game, if you're not familiar. Open-world game. set at the tail end of the 19th century, somewhere in the American West. And and you're a cowboy who's part of this outlaw gang, and you go on various missions, robbing, you know, train, going after rival as or hideout, that kind of stuff. But you can also just walk around and just ride your horse around this big open world, similar to HBO's uh, Westworld. And, and when I first started wandering around the woods, <laughs> I kept forgetting which button you would push to talk to strangers, compared to which button you'd push to shoot them. And I kept accidentally drawing my gun on people and shooting at people, and then and then they kind of like that hue and cry. People would start yelling, "Hey, best shot!" I, there's or like, or, you know, I had to get him or, just, you know, whatever. They're just, they just start yelling and all of a sudden like a mob would truly form and then a bunch of people were just fucking shooting at you. Uh, and then I would get killed initially. But then I realized that if I just like uh, killed all the witnesses that, and then just like ran away before some other people showed up to see me with all the bodies, no one's coming looking for me. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's how it was. You know, especially pre Pinkerton when no one's really doing any investigation, like there's none. If nobody directly witnesses you committing some random crime of opportunity, you're not gonna get caught. Like unless you open your mouth and are bragging about it, at the saloon and you know, and just totally incriminate yourself and that person decides to to tell somebody, then maybe you'll get caught. But otherwise, how the fuck would they catch you? There's no security cameras, you know, and there's and there's no real police wandering around patrolling anything. Uh craziness to me. Yeah, prior to Pinkerton's, uh, what we mostly know about criminal investigations is that there just wasn't many. You know, we think about the Salem witch trials. suck, you know, that kangaroo court allowing spectral evidence to be entered. You know, if someone dreamed you were <laughs> were a witch, they actually held evidence in some weird court and you could be, you could be hanged because someone dreamed you were a witch. You know, that happened less than 200 years before the Pinkertons. You know, the Joan of Arc stuff, all those uh, crazy, you know, inquisitions, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't that far before the Pinkertons, not really. You know, just lunatics, you know, convicting people based on horseshit. Uh, You know, you know, we know now that police officers, as we know them today, came into existence in the last 200 years. And how did those police officers investigate crimes? Not very well at first. They had no forensic evidence to help them with, uh, uh, you know, their investigations. And, you know, and they weren't just a lot of times that good at their jobs. Uh, The pay was really shitty. A lot of times it was still kind of like a quasi-volunteer position. And, um, you know, there's nothing, it's not like there was some academy or anything like there is now. They just, just random people just getting thrown into quote unquote law enforcement. It wasn't a craft that you could hone. So now that we know a little bit about how uh, law enforcement worked in the world prior to the Pinkertons, finally, let's get into the Pinkertons, see how they changed things, see how they introduced some new investigative methods. And just, you know, hear some of their fascinating tales in today's TimeSuck timeline, right after a quick word from another one of today's kick-ass sponsors. Today's TimeSuck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus, very good to the Time Suck community. Uh, very good to Time Suck. I appreciate a lot of you Time Suckers already giving them a chance and loving them and letting me know about it. Uh, the Great Courses Plus is an amazing service that lets you dive deep into so many fascinating topics that you might not have had the chance to learn about during school. Or if you're like, if you're like me, maybe you did possibly have the chance, but you weren't paying attention because you didn't think your teachers were very good. Uh, definitely not as good as The Great Courses Professor's. I have really, really enjoyed the course, Your Deceptive Mind by Dr. Steven Novella. Uh, it's truly changed the the way I look at the world around me, uh, how I research this podcast. Fascinating to look at how our brains work to process information and misinformation. You know, uh, learn how to separate science from pseudoscience that surrounds us every day and, and just become a stronger critical thinker. Uh, I've been leaning on lecture 19 from this course. A uh, lecture uh, titled the, the, the Trap of Grand Conspiracy Thinking for a lot of the secret suck kind of stuff I've been doing and then for the New World Order suck. Uh, Dr. Novella in this lecture talks directly about conspiracies. Uh, uh, he talks about something called the – it's a tough word, but I'm going to do my best. Paradolia, paradolia, the tendency of our brain to impose patterns on random data. Our brain wants the world to be ordered just the way our brain's connected. We we want events that we witness to make sense. We want to be able to, to file them in the uh, appropriate compartments of our mind because a sense of not being able to figure out exactly why something is happening, you know, can fill you with dread and anxiety. Um, I actually have the words uh, embrace the darkness tattooed on my right bicep, which is my way of saying we never uh, are ever going to understand why certain things happen or don't, so why worry about it? You know, embrace the unknown because uh, some of the unknown will will inevitably just remain unknown, despite how much thought you put towards it. And this uh, this mental process of uh, pareidolia can manifest itself in conspiratorial thinking. You start connecting dots that aren't really connected, just because you you just want them to be connected. You you start seeing patterns where no patterns actually exist. Uh, the Illuminati eye on the back of a dollar bill, the Pinkerton's use of a, of an all-knowing eye and their iconography, uh, Time Suck using the all-knowing eye in their iconography. You know, it's like, it's, it's got to be connected. They're all part of the Freemasons. They're all part of the Illuminati. It's all part of the same plan. Or uh, is it that? Or did a lot of people just think, that's a fucking cool looking eye. I like that. Uh, So, you know, for a a much more detailed explanation of what I just touched on, uh, so much, so much more, uh, so many topics, give The Great Courses Plus a try. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy The Great Courses Plus as much as I do, so don't miss out on this special limited time offer. Get a full month of unlimited access to all their lectures for free only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's uh, sign up for your free month now only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description, Pinkerton timeline right now. Trap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Alan Pinkerton, is born in, uh, founder of the Pinkertons, uh, born in Glasgow, Scotland, to William Pinkerton and his wife, Isabel McQueen, on August 25th, 1819. Another Scottish character. Still haven't traveled to Scotland and, and, uh, and stayed there for a suck, but it keeps coming up. Scottish characters keep coming up. Highlanders. Uh, rednecks, right? Uh, some, some, uh, some hillbillies. Uh, Pinkerton grew up in the notorious Gorbals district, an urban slum notorious for wretched living conditions and crime in the 19th century. Overcrowded area of crude housing built by factory owners, uh, designed mainly for factory workers who couldn't afford to, to, uh, to rent out places of their own. As a young man, Pinkerton embraced, uh, chartism, a political movement to see the working class more fairly represented in British government. And he became a vocal leader of the movement in Scotland. In 1842, a 23-year-old Pinkerton left Scotland amid a violent crackdown against Chartist leadership. Uh, that year, a petition calling for political reform in favor of the working class gathered three and a half million signatures and it was rejected by Parliament. An economic depression also hit Britain that year, uh, leading to wage cuts for factory workers, which led to factory strikes, which led to very angry mobs which led to mob violence which led to the government arresting numerous chartist leaders demanding the reforms that led to the violence which led to Pinkerton bouncing the fuck on out of Scotland when he realized the British government just wasn't going to treat Scottish workers fairly anytime soon. And uh and it also you know imprinted on uh, on his uh you know brain a little little desire for justice. He didn't feel the the working class I guess was receiving in Scotland, but it is interesting that this happened to him as well because then later in life towards the end of his life uh he would struggle with this uh, morally, But he would end up reaching the height of his kind of organizational strength by kind of becoming what he hated in this sense, where, you know, the Pinkertons would gain their, the most notoriety for cracking down on the working class, for being hired by industrialists uh, representing factory owners to to squash strikes, uh, which I didn't know before this sucks. So it's weird that he left. Scotland, because he's like, oh, man, this, these guys are just, uh, they're not treating these workers very well, and, you know, and we're not going to get any fair treatment, so I got to go to America. And then later on, you know, as he as he reaches middle age, he becomes the person he hated in many ways. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. Alan and his wife, Joan, landed in Canada, quickly made their way west to Chicago, which was just another frontier outpost in the early 1840s. Uh, in the 1840s, the Chicago the Pinkertons arrived in was a rapidly changing, very chaotic town. Uh, pretty damn new town. It wasn't until August 4th, 1830, that Chicago was even surveyed and platted, a.k.a. mapped. In 1833, that's when Chicago incorporated into a city. And in 1840, the city still didn't even have 5,000 residents. Isn't that so weird how towns develop? You know, like there was uh, there was other towns, I'm sure, surrounded around uh, America that, that did not go uh, further to become big metropolises that were much bigger at the time than Chicago. But Chicago really uh, really went, went, went bananas after this. But uh, yeah, in 1840, had 4,470 residents. That's not a city. That's a, that's a small town. I've been in a lot of towns around that size, and they are not Chicago. Uh, but it was growing rapidly. In 10 years, it would grow over sixfold into a city of 30,000. Uh, and then it would nearly quadruple in size the next decade, reaching a population of over 110,000 by 1860, despite a cholera outbreak. Taken out 5% of the population in 1854. So many buttholes blown clean off that year. With the worst diarrhea outbreak in Chicago history, a lot of McGill's pop. Just a lot of like, ah! oh, God, it's my butthole. Uh, sorry, New listeners. Oh, that was a little Donner party. Uh, suck call back there. Uh, suck 94. Hail Nimrod. So when Pinkerton arrived, you know, Chicago Chicago is very, it's, it's quickly changing. It's becoming a booming metropolis. Uh, just, you know, we had a very Wild West feel to it. Uh, the population surged, driven largely by westward expansion. At that time, it was, you know, part of the West, not the Midwest as we think of it today. Railroad construction, you know, is, is going through there. Uh, because of its railroad connections, Chicago's commercial reach was considerable. it's was a good location, you know, with the with waterfront there and the Great Lakes, and uh, and then the, all the railroads going through it. A lot of money is being made by a lot of different people. And, and then independent banknotes, or wildcat money, uh, is serving as official tender and then these notes tended to be uh, easily forged, faked, and traded in underground in this underground economy that was developing, which gave rise to this big kind of counterfeiting community, and then you know created the need for detectives to catch them. And if you're wondering what the hell is Wildcat Money, good question. Uh, I'd never heard of it before. Well, the period from 1816 to 1863 is known in the U.S. at least in economic, or at least economically, I guess, as the Free Banking Era. Banks were not federally regulated. Uh, they were regulated by the state. They were located in, and not all new states were good at regulating their banks. Uh, before the Federal Reserve System of 1913, you know, banks in like these uh, new states and or, or territories extended loans by offering notes backed by mortgages or government bonds. The holder of the note had a, had a claim on the bank's assets. The value of the note depended on the bank's assets, similar to buying like stocks today. Uh, and a lot of these new banks would start up and show the state or, you know, whatever territory kind of banking commission that they, that they had enough capital to operate, but the money they would show the commission would be money they just borrowed. And they would have to give that money back to whoever loaned them the money to start up their bank. And then they didn't have enough money to operate. And a lot of these places would go bankrupt quickly and leave their note holders holding their proverbial dick in their hands. And a lot of different banks they are springing up this way. And then there's very little regulation regarding, you know, uh, who could open a bank, you know, how many banks could be open. Uh, What their notes had to look like and shit got real chaotic real quick. Adding to the confusion, uh, like I mentioned a minute ago, are are all these counterfeiters springing up, printing all these fake notes, you know, supposed to be from this bank or that bank. It was anarchy. Very Wild West. And then this chaos allowed Alan Pinkerton to make a name for himself. After settling just outside of Chicago proper, uh, Pinkerton went to work at Lill's Brewery as a barrel maker. And then he soon determined that working for himself would be more profitable. So he moves his family to a small town called Dundee in 1843, some 50 miles northwest of Chicago, builds a cabin back in the days when a lot of people built their own homes. No, thank you. I'm fairly handy when I want to be, but no, thank you. Uh, I I, I built a tree house uh, a while back and there was definitely a lot of uh, moments of, ah, ah, that's good enough. It'll probably work. Doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, Lindsay would never leave me alone if I actually built our own house. It would just constantly be comments of, what's going on in that corner there? Why doesn't the trim reach the wall? Because I'm not a fucking carpenter, all right? Stop complaining. We kind of have a roof over our head and don't get that wet when it rains. Uh, Well, in Dundee, named obviously after Crocodile Dundee, crikey, that's not a knife. This is a knife. That's not true. Uh, Anyway, in Dundee, uh, Pinkerton got back to making barrels. And he quickly cornered the, the lucrative Dundee barrel market due to the superior quality and low price of his extra barrel barrels. Uh, but anyway, after, after looking uh, for a way to increase his profit margins, he realized he could save money by not paying someone else for poles to make the barrel hoops and just gathering that wood himself. So in 1847, 27-year-old Pinkerton looking for said wood, finds a small deserted island in the middle of the Fox River, rows out to cut down uh, you know, some wood of his own. However, when he gets out of the island, he also finds signs that someone had been out there and and making some counterfeit notes. And and he he wonders if this island, you know, might be their hideout. So he goes to find the county sheriff, returns with the county sheriff to make the arrests and claim the reward offered for these counterfeiters. Uh, And that in and of of itself speaks to how loose law enforcement was at this time compared to now. Right. Like, remember when I talked about posses and, and the regulators just a little bit ago and vigilante justice? I mean, think about this. He's a random dude. No law enforcement experience. He is not trained. He is not part of the law enforcement community in any way whatsoever. He's a dude making barrels. And he finds evidence of a crime scene. And he goes and tells the, you know, the sheriff. And the sheriff brings him back to actively help him make the arrest. Can you, I mean, can can you imagine a modern day equivalent of that? Like if you, if you're in your car and you see somebody go (laughs) in like armed men to go and rob a bank and you call the police and then the police are like, hey, yeah. would you mind going in and arrest them yourself? If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. Uh, you can wait for us to get there, but when we get there, it would be great if uh, if, you, if you could just bring your gun in and help us get the bank robbers. If you don't have one, we have some extra guns. We can give you a gun, and we can all go in together and just make this shit happen. Uh, <laughs> that is exactly the way it was back then. Uh, Pinkerton realizes there was more money in catching counterfeiters after getting this reward than there was in making whiskey barrels, uh, and it gives him a greater sense of satisfaction. So, uh, you know, and apparently he's good at it because uh, soon after this, other businessmen in Dundee start contracting with Pinkerton to investigate similar counterfeiters, right? Like I said earlier, it was a real problem, it was rampant. Well, a year later in 1848, Pinkerton gains local fame for his arrest of notorious area counterfeiter John Crick. Uh, The country being new and great sensation scarce, the affair was in everybody's mouth. And I suddenly found myself called upon from every quarter to undertake matters requiring the detective skill. He would he would later write that about it. Alan Pinkerton, I got to say, he does sound like a cool dude, uh, especially young Alan Pinkerton. Uh, the more I more I researched the young Alan Pinkerton, the more I would like him. Uh, you know, he wasn't just interested in justice uh, that brought him money. He was interested in social justice. Uh, and again, this kind of would change towards the end of his life. But uh, but early on, he was he was a dedicated abolitionist, you know, someone who strongly opposed slavery someone who fought to end slavery. He actually served as a state representative to Illinois' Liberty Party Convention in 1848, helped raise money to fund John Brown. Now, if you don't know that name, John Brown, famous abolitionist, hero, uh, who believed that armed insurrection was the only way to end slavery. This is a dude who would die a martyr to the cause. He actually commanded numerous posses of armed abolitionists, fought and killed slaveholders and slavery supporters in numerous violent clashes in the 1850s. Uh, he led a raid on a federal armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, present day West Virginia, and tried to start a liberation movement among slaves there by arming them. But pro slavery U.S. Marines led by Robert E. Lee and a local militia beat him and his men back. And then he was captured and hanged for treason and other crimes on December 2nd, 1859. Man, John Brown, white dude, died a martyr for the abolitionist cause, and Alan Pinkerton supported him. Finally, a Scottish character who's not racist. Thank you, Alan Pinkerton, for not getting me in a lot of trouble again. Uh, The next year, 1849, Pinkerton becomes the first police detective in Chicago. Uh, You know, he was good at investigations. An entirely new position is created for him. Uh, He's, you know, the first detective unit in the entire nation dedicated to actually investigating crimes had just been established in the much larger city at the time of Boston in 1846, uh, Chicago hadn't even formed a, a, an official police department yet with full-time law enforcement officers being paid living wages. That wouldn't happen until 1855. Prior to that, there were these just constables in Chicago, uh, that, which began in 1835 when uh, initially only three men were elected to help provide law for the city's roughly 3,000 people at that time. And, and, and like kind of alluded to earlier, odds are these men are paid so little. This is more of like a quasi-volunteer position. Kind of like a, I would think of it in the way that like like a small-town mayor is, uh, is today, you know, like, uh, think about if you're a mayor of a town of roughly, you know, 3000 people, you're not making a living. You're maybe getting a little tiny stipend. That's kind of how it was for these constables back then. Uh, you know, like, like sometimes now today for a mayor, i looked this up just out of curiosity. Uh, they'll just be paid like a symbolic fee of like a dollar a month. Actually, I found an article that said that the mayor of Springfield, Utah population of almost 35,000, 250 bucks a month. So yeah, so the, so Again, it wasn't until, what, 1855 that they would actually be paid full-time living wages. Uh, in 1850, Pinkerton partners with Chicago attorney Edward Rucker, or Rucker excuse me, in forming the Northwestern Police Agency, which would soon be renamed Pinkerton & Co., then renamed again Pinkerton National Detective Agency, still in existence today, known as Pinkerton Consulting and Investigations. Uh, Pinkerton's business insignia was, still is, the wide-open eye with the caption, We never sleep. New World Order, uh, beginning in 1853, Pinkerton's detective agency begins getting hired by law enforcement uh, agencies around the country to track down various criminals. Some of those criminals will be popping up later in this timeline, like the absolutely outrageous case, I'm so glad I found, of Lord Burston. Uh, I'm guessing some of you have probably heard of this. Lord Burstyn, uh, Lord was a Tennessee pimp living a half day's ride east of Nashville, and he specialized in, uh, of all things, horse sex. Oh, uh, hold up, hold up, hold up, Joe. Just, just, just a second. Hold up, chicken, Joe. Uh, Both with men and women, both male and female horses. uh, There's a rumor that a young Grover Cleveland, future president, uh, visited Lord's uh, strange brothel. And as did uh, supposedly humorist Mark Twain, a few lines in Huckleberry Finn are actually supposedly nods to Twain's visits, such as, that is just the way with some people. They get down on a thing when they don't know nothing about it. He may be referring to bestiality there. Uh, okay, all right Sounds like he's not going away Uh, come on, come on in Come on in, check and joke Bop, bop playboy ba bop Did hey, that horse have fun? The man, the lady They all getting it on And getting along Tell me, playboy, where that cry? Live and let it live Live and let it die Live and love horses and ponies If that's how you want to pass your time if hey, the horse tied And it feels right What's the real difference Between skin and fur or Handle and hoof Oh, daddy Nay, nay You dig, you feel me? You hear what I have to say? Uh, that was Chicken Joe's way of saying that he doesn't have an ethical problem uh, with bestiality. And now, thank you, Chicken Joe, get out of here. Uh, I should say that I made up everything about Lord Burston. Uh, of course, there was not a weird horse sex brothel uh, out in Tennessee at this time. But the Pinkertons really do solve some interesting cases that we will talk about soon. Not lying about that. Maybe not. Maybe not horse brothel. Interesting, but, but close. Uh, by early 1855, 35-year-old Pinkerton. Uh, had also become a special agent for the U S postal service to investigate counterfeiting and mail fraud. All of this with no formal training in law enforcement whatsoever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> another sign of how uh, different law enforcement, how it was in its infancy back then, you know, definitely, hopefully it doesn't work that way now. You know, thankfully now it's not like, Hey, uh, how'd you become a cop? Ah, I said, I was pretty good at shooting shit. And, uh, they gave me a gun a car and a batch. Ah, all right. That easy. Uh, in 1855, Pinkerton and his new agency gained national acclaim when the New York Times recognized the fine work of special mail agent, Alan Pinkerton, uh, in capturing mail clerk, Theodore Denniston in what, what it called the most important arrest in the annals of post office depredations ever brought to light in this country. Ah, I mean, I mean, that is cool. Kind of funny though. It's like, it's the most exciting arrest in post office history. So probably not that exciting. The the later tales would be more exciting. Also in 1855, uh, Pinkerton's agency uh, contracted with six local railway lines to provide security and oversight of employees. They began testing station agents and conductors to prevent embezzlement and theft. With money moving from station to station, the potential for embezzlement and theft increased. Railroad companies, you know, were worrying about the loyalty of their employees and they would hire the Pinkertons to test their conductors and station masters, ferret out those who were, you know, pocketing fares or not reporting, uh, you know, correct ridership which is an angle of crime I didn't even think about, right? Like back then, way before you had computers and credit cards in the Wild West, especially, it's like, yeah, if you're the guy taking ticket fares and you got a hundred people getting on the train and you tell the tell the company, you know, you, you had 90, get on the train, who's probably going to find out? That's some pretty profitable grifting, but then the Pinkertons had to come along and ruin it. Um, in late 1858, abolitionist John Brown freed 11 slaves in a raid on two Missouri homesteads and uh, set to take them to freedom in Canada. And then Pinkerton raised $500 to to help him out and also arranged for safe transportation from Chicago to Detroit using his railway connections. Again, I know it's not a note about him being a detective, uh, but I did want to throw that in there. He was a Scottish social justice warrior ahead of his time. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, let's talk about him, 1860, 1861, He he was supposed to make a railway journey to the nation's capital after he got elected. And then Samuel Morse Felden, president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, believed that the president-elect failed to grasp the seriousness of his position. Uh, Rumors had reached Felden, a stolid, bespeckled blue blood, whose brother was uh, president of Harvard at the time, that secessionists in the South might be mounting a deep laid conspiracy to capture Washington, destroy all avenues leading to it from the north, east, and west, and prevent the inauguration of Mr. Lincoln in the capital of our country. Uh, I then determined, Felton recalled later, to investigate the matter in my own way. What was needed, he realized, was an independent operative who had already proven his mettle in the service of the railroads. Snatching up his pen, Felton dashed off an urgent plea to a celebrated detective who resided in the west. And, of course, he is talking about Alan Pinkerton. And now Alan Pinkerton uh, takes on one of the most famous cases uh, that he would be involved in. In 1861, when the Civil War began, Pinkerton served as head of the Union Intelligence Service during the first two years, uh, heading off this uh, alleged assassination plot in Baltimore, Maryland, while guarding Abraham Lincoln on his way to Washington, D.C. Yeah, his, uh, and his work here and the work of his agents in this capacity would actually uh, kind of pave the way for the creation later of the Secret Service. Uh, we know all about the actual assassination of Lincoln. You know, we did a suck on that but we did not get into this alleged plot to assassinate him in 1861. February 11th, 1861, president-elect Lincoln boards an eastbound train in Springfield, Illinois at the start of a whistle-stop tour, 70 towns and cities, ending with his inauguration in Washington, D.C. And a lot of people rightfully nervous about this trip. Lincoln was elected via his support in Union States. He did not do well in the South. And uh, and shit was tense, right? The, The South would secede very soon. And the Civil War would begin. You know, this is like in less than like two months. So none other than America's premier detective and investigator, Alan Pinkerton, hired by railroad officials, like we just said, to investigate suspicious activities, acts of destruction of railroad property along Lincoln's route uh, through Baltimore. Uh, especially, they were worried about Baltimore. You know, Lincoln had won only two point five percent of the presidential vote in Maryland. Not well liked in this pro-slavery state. Uh, Pinkerton became convinced that the plot, uh, there was a plot that existed to ambush Lincoln's carriage between the Calvert Street Station of the Northern Central Railway and the Camden Street Station of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Uh, Pinkerton went undercover in Baltimore, posing as a stockbroker and a Southern loyalist who hated Lincoln. And he had some other agents go undercover as well with him. And he was uh, able to get introduced to some people uh, with knowledge of the plot to kill Lincoln. And this was unheard of in America. This is really cool to me because this is the first example of uh, some, some law enforcement types doing undercover work you know, uh, in America, this just didn't happen before. Like today we've seen, you know, movies, TV shows, read books involving undercover agents. They did not exist prior to Alan Pinkerton in the United States. Like, like how cool, how cool is that? They pioneered this. Uh, there were a little bit before in France, there were French law enforcement agents had just begun to experiment a bit with undercover agents, uh, you know, doing undercover work a few decades earlier. Uh, this was spearheaded by a man named Eugene, uh, Francois, uh, Vidak, A former criminal turned investigator, considered by many to be the world's very first modern detective, like the first in the world, the father of modern criminology to many, the uh, founder of modern law enforcement in France for sure, guy who deserves his own suck. Uh, And he started doing and supervising undercover work in France between 1811, 1832. I'm sure Pinkerton was familiar with his work. And then, you know, Pinkerton, like I said, and his agents, the first to do this in America. And, and, you know, and close to being the first to doing it in the world. Uh, Lincoln tried to persuade Uh, excuse excuse me, Pinkerton tried to persuade Lincoln uh, to cancel his stop at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and proceed straight, uh, you know, through Baltimore uh, and kind of skip parts of his scheduled tour to throw people off. But Lincoln was like, no, I want to keep on. I want to stay on the schedule. So then Pinkerton tried to take other measures into his hands uh, to ensure uh, Lincoln's safety. On the evening of February 22nd in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Pinkerton had telegraph lines to Baltimore cut had them severed to prevent communications uh, from being able to be passed between potential conspirators in Pennsylvania and Maryland, just so people couldn't be like, hey, the train's leaving now, you get ready. Uh, meanwhile, Lincoln then left Harrisburg on a special unscheduled train. So he, he was able to convince Lincoln to at least change his schedule. We're gonna go the same route, but not at the same time. And, uh, and secretly arrive in Baltimore in the middle of the night. The most dangerous link in the journey, again, was Baltimore, you know, uh, where a city ordinance prohibited nighttime rail travel through the downtown area. And therefore, when they did this, they did sneak him through at night, but they had, they had to uh, draw the train through town with horses uh, between the President Street and Camden Street stations, which just cracks me up. Like you would think that the president-elect traveling secretly in fear of his life, even if it's, even in a state that hated him, could get a, you know, no trains at night in Baltimore city ordinance situationally lifted. Uh, I just, I just picture one of Lincoln's advisors or one of the Pickertons talking to some city official who just cannot fathom breaking a law under any circumstances, right? One of those people, that personality type, by the way, I cannot stand people who just can't think outside the box or bend a rule ever. I think I've ranted about them before in here. Like, like it's like when you're checking into a hotel and check-ins like three o'clock and it's two fifty-five and they're like, "Um, check-ins at 3 p.m. Yeah, I know, but I'm here now and the room is ready. Check-in is at 3 p.m. Okay, you're one of those people. Uh, hope you have a fucking stroke soon. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it does just crack me out. I picture someone being like, so uh, yeah, so we're going to need to take some uh, top secret cargo. I can't exactly get into it. Uh, it's presidential, you know, elective a- approval though. Uh, we're going to need to take it through the city at night. So I know you got an ordinance, but we're going to have to, but there's an ordinance that says, no, you cannot do it. Yeah, no, 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 I know. I know, I know there's an ordinance. I just, that's what I was saying. I, that. That's why I'm talking to you now. Uh, but the president-elect is asking for a little leeway. But the ordinance said that the train does not go at night. No nighttime choo-choo. Not ever with ordinance. Ah, I know. I get it. I get that there's an ordinance. Everyone understands there's an ordinance. But in this specific case, in every case of night train, there is ordinance. Ordinance say the toot you have a weight Okay for fuck's sake we'll just get some horses Let me check on the ordinance for the horsing nanes. Oh god damn it Uh according to Pinkerton a captain of the roads reported that there was a plot to stab the president elect and the alleged plan was to have several assassins armed with knives interspersed throughout the crowd that would gather to greet Lincoln, uh, Lunkin, uh, Lincoln at this, uh, Baltimore stop. And when he emerged from the car, they would just, you know, uh, just swoop in on him. And at least some of the assassins would be able to get in there, even if others were stopped and be able to fucking stab him, which is, wow, what a brutal way to a, it's like some, uh, some Roman, you know, uh, uh, Caesar kind of shit. Just it, too, Brutus, um, once Lincoln's rail carriage had safely passed through Baltimore, Pinkerton sent a one-line telegram to the president of the Philadelphia Wilmington and Baltimore Railroad saying plums delivered nuts safely, even using code words. I bet that was for the first time too, right? Back then, police, uh, police officers used some, some code, man. On the afternoon of February 23rd, Lincoln's scheduled train arrived at Calvert Street Station in Baltimore. The large crowd that gathered at the station to see the president-elect quickly learned Lincoln had already passed them by. Ha ha! Tricked, you plotting bastards! you ain't stopping no one know how. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. So moving on in the timeline during the Civil War, Pinkerton and his agents often worked undercover, so they got further into undercover work, uh, working undercover as Confederate soldiers, uh, working undercover as Southern sympathizers to gather military intelligence for the Union States. Uh, Pinkerton himself served on several undercover missions, uh, the 40-something posing as a Confederate soldier using the alias Major E.J. Allen. Uh, working, he worked across the deep South in the summer of 1861, focusing on uh, fortifications and Confederate battle plans. He was, he was discovered being a spy in Memphis, barely escaped with his life. And, uh, and before we go further with his life, uh, time for a word from today's, uh, it's our final sponsor. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by Sergeant Bubbles Elite Primate Home Security Systems. Did you know, that according to Sergeant Bubble, home invasions worldwide have gone up by over 6,000% in the last three months. Now, if you don't feel scared at home, you should, you should. Because some Richard Nightstock or Ramirez, some toy box killer, some Golden State killer type super creep is probably, odds are, they're hanging around outside your house right now, planning, waiting, sniffing your undies, sniffing your panties that they stole just yesterday. It's, it happens all all the time. So stop wondering what goes bump in the night and protect yourself with one of Sergeant Bubble's elite primate home security systems. For the small fee of $1,500 a month, two chimps armed with handguns, knives, hopped up on a manageable level of methamphetamines will continually patrol the perimeter of your home day and night, biting, stabbing, probably shooting anything out of the ordinary. Uh, Someone you don't know stops by, those chimps will attack first ask questions later. And for only $1,500 more a month, you can upgrade to the premium package where an additional chimp patrols your home perimeter. Got three chimps out there. And then also you got three tiny monkeys armed with little switchblades and little Glock G42s. They're following you around in the house. Safety's off, chamber loaded at all times. Wherever you go, you will rest easy knowing there are chimps and monkeys protecting your home in, in person. Now, please note that Sergeant Bubbles Elite primary uh, Home Security Systems are not liable for any damage, or killing, or mayhem caused by the monkeys uh, and/or chimps. Oh, 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 ah, 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 ah. And of course, that's not today's sponsor. No, today's that was a lot of fun though for me. Today's final sponsor is brought to you by Lisa. Do you wake up feeling achy, easily distracted, or forgetting things? Not surrounded by monkeys patrolling your home? A quality night's sleep makes all the difference. And and the right mattress is the key to getting proper rest instead of just laying down. Alan Pinkerton, uh, had Lisa been around in the 19th century, probably uh, would have caught twice as many criminals. He would have slept on a Lisa, and he would have caught two to maybe even ten times the criminals he caught. Fact. Uh, The Lisa mattress is a product of 30 years of experience, hundreds of hours of rigorous product testing, designed for body contouring and pressure relief. The Lisa mattress is perfect for all sleepers. Shop conveniently online with free shipping and 100 nights to try the mattress risk-free in your own home. The Lisa mattress is backed by more than 12,000 five-star reviews loved by more than 300,000 happy sleepers. Now, Uh, and Lisa also donates as many of you know, one mattress for every 10 sold. So you can sleep easy and feel good about your purchase. Uh, Lindsay and I love our Lisa mattress. Uh, we sleep there, the three tiny monkeys with their, with their switchblades and little guns. Uh, they sleep at the foot of the Lisa mattress. No, but I like the way uh, it feels. And I've said uh, before how it doesn't overheat me, you know, I'm a sucker for some good memory foam uh, that doesn't overdo it, you know, because I'm not looking to make like a mold of myself. I don't want to sink in and make a mold of myself for some weird statue to be put in the living room for the kids to throw darts at. Uh, I also want to sink, you know, I don't want to sink that far into it, but I also don't want to like not sink at all. I don't want to feel like I'm sleeping on the dining room table. Lisa walks that line in between the two very well. And right now get $150 off the Lisa mattress plus a free pillow at lisa.com slash timesuck. Enter the pro uh, promo code timesuck at checkout. This is Lisa's best offer. Lisa.com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck. And the link, of course, in the episode description. We make it easy. We make it easy. Sponsor link right on the app. Uh, now back to the Pinkertons. Working during the Civil War. Uh, Pinkerton not only enhanced his investigative reputation, gathering intelligence during the war, uh, he also made a great deal of money and was able to greatly expand his services and hire a ton of new agents for his work after the war. Uh, in order to maintain the standards as he's hiring more people, Pinkerton drafted a series of rules and regulations for becoming a Pinkerton. The agency published the first version of General Principles and Rules of Pinkerton's National Police Agency in 1867, said the character of the detective must be above reproach. And none but those untainted with crime of strict moral principles and good habits will be permitted to enter the service. Under no circumstances will the detective of the agencies endeavor to induce any parties upon whom they may be operating to the commission of crime. Uh, Agents were strictly forbidden to uh, work for rewards. don't want to give them an incentive to, uh, you know, break the law to get a reward. Instead, they earned uh, on a per diem basis and kept meticulous records filed for expenses. So that's very cool, man. I mean, like there were bounty hunters, like true bounty hunters before the Pinkertons, but now you got like the first kind of invest. Well, not, not kind of the first investigative group that can cross state lines, and go investigate, you know, different crimes for different people that that are, you know, uh, kind of properly vetted to make sure they're the right kind of people to do this job. And, uh, and, you know, people that don't have incentive to, to break a bunch of laws and just become bounty hunters. Uh, yeah. This level of organization and, and employee scrutiny novel, you know, in 1867, you know, random assholes out Wild West were just named sheriff every day. Like I was saying earlier, you know how to fire a gun? Yeah, well, I guess you're sheriff now. Uh, not with the Pinkertons. They were they were, they were carefully choosing people. Uh, Pinkerton updated the principles in 1869, again in 1873, uh, you know, for the rechristened Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. Uh, as an additional part of his effort to promote the agency, Pinkerton also began to publish his own, own tales of uh, detection and criminality. He starts writing a bunch of books, Uh, some of these books you can still order today on sites like, you know, Barnes Nobles or Amazon or whatever, or, or go to your local bookstore, have them order them. we got the, uh, the well-read Moose here in Coeur d'Alene, a great little book company. They'll order those things as well. And they're, and he starts writing books, detailing the exploits of, uh, you know, his detective work, the detective work of his sons, other detectives. And yes, uh, he did have sons that would carry on the legacy of his agency. Uh, A daughter, Isabella was born in 1843. Son, William Allen, born in 1846. Another daughter, Kate born in 1847, Another daughter, Joan, 1848, and then a son, Robert Allen Pinkerton, also born in 1848. Uh, William Allen and Robert would both work for their father. Uh, Pinkerton's books included many of the key attributes of the modern detective story, uh, including, I just thought this was funny, there's a moment in one of his books where Pinkerton, having having become acquainted with some new information about a man he's pursuing, actually exclaims the now very cliche, the plot thickens. (laughs) Uh, The books were also great advertising and recruiting. Uh, you know, uh, kind of propaganda, I guess, or recruiting, you know, uh, literature for Pinkerton's agency. You know, they featured the, the company's logo emblazoned on the cover. They made people want to join up. Between 1875 and 1884, he published 17 of these books. Uh, by the mid to late 1870s, Pinkerton's detective work shifts from uncovering embezzlement to imposing order in the Wild West. This is kind of my favorite little era of the Pinkertons. Uh, especially the pursuit of train robbers at the behest of, uh, of train companies, express companies. To Pinkerton, lawlessness in the American West was a disease that could spread to the rest of the country if it wasn't stopped. He would write, uh, like any disease that continues to corrupt until arrested by a gradual purification of the whole body or by some severe treatment, so too would lawlessness continue to spread. From every portion of the country flowed these streams of morally corrupt people Until until nearly every town west of the Missouri or east of the mountains along these lines became a terror to honest people. Uh, Yeah, residents of America's rough and rugged areas, however, uh, resented often and resisted incursions by Pinkerton agents, as we learned in the Hatfield McCoy suck this past week, right? Like, get out here, go on now, hawk folk, dog folk, don't need no Pinkertons, interfering clan matters. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, A lot of communities actually viewed bandits. I I found this interesting. Uh, When the Pinkertons started pursuing these these bank robbers, these stagecoach and train robbers, uh, a lot of the communities out in the Wild West uh, they preferred the robbers. <laughs> they defended their, uh, they, they they thought these robbers were kind of defending, defending, excuse me, the honor of their communities by somehow by stealing back from the railroads. Because I guess, you know, the railroads were sometimes bringing in uh, foreigners and unwanted business competition to their little communities that they didn't care for. And they thought the railroads were, you know, not paying fair wages and just, you know, kind of, you know, uh, exploiting them. So they liked it when people would rob these places. You know, they were they were leery of the banks. They thought the banks were ripping them off. So they liked it when people robbed the banks. And, uh, and then a lot of these people saw these Pinkerton agents as just these bank and railroad companies, you know, paid assassins. Now let's hop back uh, a bit in the timeline to talk about how the Pinkertons first entered the world of pursuing Western bandits because it all started with the Reno brothers gang, which I had not heard of before this. Uh, random trivia, uh, Elvis Presley's, First role in a movie was uh, uh, playing one of the the Reno brothers. 99% sure. I don't have that written down on my notes, but I remember coming across it. Uh, residents of the little railroad city of Seymour, Indiana. Less than 20,000 people today, less than 2000 back in the 1860s uh, when the Reno brothers started robbing banks. They're, they're the Reno brothers residents of, uh, of Seymour, products of Seymour. The, the Reno brothers had been bounty jumpers throughout the Civil War. And the bounty jumpers, uh, these were these people who would, who would enlist under some bullshit... Fake name. We have talked about this in some previous sucks, I believe, but they would enlist under some bullshit name, collect a small bounty for signing up. I think we talked about this in the KKK suck, and then uh, and then bounce on out and do it again, right? Just con men, scan scan artists or scam artists. God dang it, uh, p- piddle puzzlers. You know, I mean, I made up piddle, p- piddle puzzlers. Uh, when the war and their ability to acquire more enlistment bounty ended, the Reno brothers moved then into robbery, uh, robbing county treasurers, robbing express companies, banks. Uh, they rob a lot of people over several years time and then become nationally known as bandits in October of 1866, the four Reno brothers, John Frank, Simeon, and William, uh, along with several other, I guess it'd be Simon, but it's one of those fucked up spellings. They decided to put an extra, uh, uh, letter in there, so, but I'll, I'll say Simon. There was no pronunciation guide for his name. Uh, I doubt it was John Frank, Simon, William sounds better to me than John Frank, William, <laughs> Simeon. I doubt it was Simeon. Um, uh, these guys, along with several other gang members, committed the world's first armed robbery of a moving train just outside of Seymour. Uh, they stopped and robbed the train riding on the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad, relieved the Adams Express Company, courier of all his loot. And then the uh, Adams Express Company called the Pinkertons, and the Pinkerton agents traced the gang to Council Bluffs, Iowa, and arrested several gang members, which was awesome, until all of them escaped from the county jail within just a few weeks. Damn it! Old-timey jails. Really not good at keeping people incarcerated, as we keep learning. Uh, two months later, the Reno gang, back at it. Uh, they robbed the express train in Marshfield, Indiana, killing the expressmen. Soon after the Marshfield robbery, Pinkerton agents arrested three members of the Reno gang. However, as agents brought the prisoners into Seymour, a vigilante committee of a bunch of masked men seizes the three gang members and hangs them from a nearby tree. Uh, within a couple weeks of these lynchings, lynchings, uh, Pinkerton agents then capture additional gang members. Uh, the members, uh, Simon and William Reno in Windsor, Canada. And then after, uh, an adventurous journey across Lake Erie during which a passing ship slices their tugboat in half. That's not fun. Pinkerton and his agents, uh, bring the additional gang members to new Albany, Indiana. And then a special train arrives carrying more vigilantes, 50 masked vigilantes on this train, man. Vigilante justice is rampant. And the people that form these mobs rarely would get arrested. That's what's crazy to me too. You know, a, a bunch of concerned citizens would get riled up, uh, bust into a jail or someplace, bust out a bunch of prisoners, hang them, and then go just go back to their lives. Take off take off their masks. You know, go back to their lives just like nothing ever happened. I am glad that doesn't happen anymore. Sometimes I do wish it did. Sometimes you know, there's some dirt bags in prison, like the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. I wouldn't mind a, a mob breaking into prison and you know and hanging them. But in general, glad that angry mobs do not ex- uh, exist currently. Uh, well, when, when the mob chasing the Reno gang reached the Floyd country jail, someone in the group shot the jailer, forced their way into the cells, proceeded to hang all three Reno brothers held there, as well as an additional gang member named Charlie Anderson. The mass vigilantes then just proceeded back to the train station, hopped back on the same train they'd come in on and just uh, left town and went back to their lives. Uh, in in his mind, Pinkerton did consider this case a success. Uh, The power of the Reno gang had been forcibly broken, and and it was a success. Uh, The the Reno gang was the first real Wild West train-robbing gang to gain any national attention. And who stopped America's first real train-robbing gang? The Pinkertons. Why? Because they were trained. They had uh, organized criminal investigators uh, able to track these bandits down and put them in jail. You know, not staying in jail, I don't feel like it's the Pinkertons' problem. Uh, the lynchings did trigger international uproar. Furious British and Canadian authorities uh, opened their own investigations into the extradition proceedings and process that took them da- back down to the States. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State William Stewart offered his apologies on behalf of the State Department. Yeah, sorry, Canucks. Works different down here. You know, sometimes people go to trial. Sometimes uh, an angry mob gets them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Frank Reno, Charlie Anderson, were, were technically in federal custody when they were lynched. And this is believed to be the only time in U.S. history that federal prisoners uh, were lynched by a mob before going to trial. The remaining Reno brother, John, would live until 1895. Uh, the Reno gang is, uh, again, uh, believed to be the first Wild West kind of train robbing gang and the first, you know, kind of like brotherhood gang that would uh, kind of pave the way for later gangs like the, the James Younger gang, you know, with the James brothers and stuff. The James Younger gang. Uh, the Pinkertons would also pursue. They gained notoriety in Missouri for a series of bank and fair robberies, man, robbing people at the fair, uh, beginning in 1866, including the 1869 robbery of a bank in uh, Gallatin, Missouri, where infamous outlaw and probable future suck uh, Jesse James shot and killed bank clerk John Sheets. Then in 1871, the band of former Confederate guerrillas robbed a bank in uh, Corden, Iowa, Bank officials contacted Pinkerton, who sent his son, Robert, to investigate. The James Younger gang were the most notorious gang of their era. Uh, Man, these guys, hardcore. Jesse James and his brother, Frank, had been members of Quantrill's Raiders during the Civil War. A group of Confederate guerrilla fighters who at one point attacked the anti-slavery town of Lawrence, Kansas, killed almost 200 people in retaliation for jailing some of their family members. These are hard men. You know, uh, you know, they'd rob way too many banks, stagecoaches, and trains during a roughly decade-long crime spree beginning in 1866, and they hated the Pinkertons. Uh, during train robberies, the gang, convinced that Alan Pinkerton was always after him, would search the rail cars for that Chicago detective to try and find him and kill him. In 1874, Pinkerton quickly dispatched additional agents into Missouri to find these Pinkertons, including Joseph Witcher, who, upon arriving in Liberty, Missouri— Checked in with the local sheriff and then approached the James farm disguised as an itinerant farmhand. Suspicious of Witcher's motives and outsider status, the James gang captured and executed him. How fucking crazy is that? I mean, A, the local sheriff knew where they were and wasn't doing anything. And B, they killed the Pinkerton agent sent to find him. And then C, the sheriff still doesn't arrest him after this, which again speaks to law enforcement this time, man. Now, this guy's like, arrest him, are you crazy? That's the James brothers. <laughs> I ain't resting man. You form your own posse. You get yourself killed. Good luck to you, feller. Uh, also in 1874, James the James Younger gang, uh, their members confront additional undercover Pinkerton agents, confront them on a country road and open fire. Uh, shootout would leave Pinkerton agent Lewis Lowell dead, uh, local official Edwin Daniels dead, and a gang member, John Younger, one of the Younger brothers, dead. Uh, outraged and embarrassed, Alan Pinkerton now consider the pursuit of Jesse James to be a personal vendetta. When the Adams Express Freight and Cargo Company, the company that originally hired the Pinkertons to, uh, to come find these guys, then fires them after this shootout because they still hadn't been caught, uh, Pinkerton vows to crush the gang on his own, saying, I know the James and the Youngers are desperate men and that when we meet, it must be the death of one or both of us. My blood was spilt and they must pay. There is no use talking. They must die. Oh shit, you don't did it now, James Young. Guy. You don't get it. you don't get it. you gonna get ripped into the biggest can of whoop ass you ever did say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pinkerton's plan was to catch the James brothers at home and trap them in their farmhouse. Pinkerton reminded his agents to be sure that the Jameses were home. He also instructed them above all else, destroy the house, wipe it from the face of the earth. I mean he is pissed. They've killed some of his men. He is not dicking around. And then on january twenty fifth, eighteen seventy five, Pinkerton agents launched their range uh, launch their raid. On the James hideout, they quickly surround the house and the dead of the night and they throw into the home a specially made incendiary device uh, that consisted of a cast iron shell filled with flammable liquid and a cotton wick. And it was supposed to just illuminate the interior of the home. Instead, it it blew up more than they expected and shrapnel from the explosion killed the James's young stepbrother and took off the right arm of this kid's mother, uh, Zarelda Samu- Samuels, Uh, Neither Frank nor Jesse were even home. So, whoops, a little bit of a fuck up there. You know, you're supposed to be uh, pursuing these James gang, uh, you know, members, and you don't do your uh, investigation properly, and you end up killing their stepbrother, who had nothing to do with the crimes, and severely, severely wounding this kid's uh, uh, stepmom. So public outrage is loud and vehement after this attack. The Pinkerton raid turns the James brothers into folk heroes. Uh, embraced across the the Missouri political spectrum for a short while. Pinkerton worries that Missouri officials are actually going to indict him and his agents. And then he sadly uh, calls his pursuit of the the James gang off after this. Uh, But the James gang did still think about him. During a later train robbery, Jesse James commanded one railroad engineer to, quote, tell Alan Pinkerton and his detectives to look for us in hell. Tough words. Uh, And then James would write letters to the press condemning uh, the Pinkertons for what they did. Uh, And why was the public so in love with the the James gang, you know, uh, like them especially? Uh, It goes back to the Civil War in this case. Missouri was full of Confederate sympathizers, and the Jameses were never shy about declaring their allegiance to the Confederate cause. And they were also not reluctant about declaring uh, the political purpose of their violence. The James brothers, the Youngers, uh, they saw themselves as unrepentant rebels, Southern rebels, part of the Southern effort at resisting Reconstruction and taking back power or redeeming the South. You know, they, 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 the people they're robbing from, they considered, you know, like union targets. And as Southern Democrats came back into power a decade after the war's end, the political romantization of the James gang and the demonization of outside and Northern interests, like the Pinkertons who hunted them grew. And then most railroad and bank companies would just, they eventually just dropped their pursuit of the gang, which is again, just insane to me, uh, because of these sympathies, they were just getting too much bad PR. And I guess they just like, well, fuck it. We'll just accept that every once in a while, they're just going to rob us. And and the James gang would keep robbing. They'd keep robbing until 1882. When after eating breakfast in his home on April 3rd, 1882, uh, Jesse James turned to straighten a picture on a wall of his home. And then a fellow bandit he'd been working with named Bob Ford, Robert Ford, shot Jesse in the back of the head to collect some reward money. Jesse died instantly at age 34. People in Missouri were outraged, considered it a cowardly assassination. Within three months, Jesse's brother, Frank, surrendered, turned himself in. So people stopped chasing him. And then the jury... Didn't convict him of anything, wouldn't convict him of any crime. So he was just set free after you know, a, a decade plus of just doing what he wanted and robbing whoever he wanted, get to get, to, uh, got to lead a quiet life after that. Unreal. Just, uh, just let him go. Uh, back to the Pinkertons though, getting sidetracked for a second. I just, I just, man, I get to hear about Jesse James. I want to learn more and more and more. We gotta, we don't do a suck on the James gang. Following their James gang blunder, the Pinkertons had a rough year or so. And then things started picking up in late 1876. By 1876, conspiracy theories regarding secret societies, fraternal groups becoming very popular in the States. Many Americans at this time becoming convinced that a number of the criminal conspiracies, you know, were working in the shadows. Uh, you know, these, these, these groups, you know, range from secret labor societies to radical political ideologies to vast networks of intimidation, extortion, and murder. Sounds very familiar. The world is definitely going through another conspiracy phase right now. Uh, secret societies were considered by many to be anti-American at this time. You know, secrecy itself was seen as corrupt and self-serving. Yet, as we've learned in previous conspiracy sucks, by the end of the 19th century, the United States had entered what people would call the golden age of fraternity because uh, groups like the Freemasons were become very popular at this time. Uh, and then these soci- societies, the thinking went, had to be infiltrated. We Got to get some spies in there, find out what they're doing, expose them, crush them. And, uh, and then, you know, the Pinkertons were hired to do this. Secret labor unions were also thrown into the group of secret societies, you know, supposedly plotting down to, to take down America or plotting to take down America. And the Pinkertons would make a lot of money off of the uh, fear of the factory workers worried about these groups. And again, going back to the very beginning of the episode, I do find it interesting now that Pinkerton now is going to get truly rich working on behalf of industrialists to crack down on striking labor unions to keep the wheels of industry turning when he left Scotland because of people doing essentially that same shit to him and his buddies. He was part of the labor unions over there, flees the country because the government, you know, cracks down so hard on it and people start dying. And then, you know, years later, he ends up, uh, you know, becoming one of the people he would have hated as a young man. Uh, and, and this period would lead to the biggest blemishes on the on the legacy of the Pinkertons. They would become viewed as the enemy of the working man and to me, that view seems to be pretty correct based on a lot of the stuff they did here. Kind of kind of lost their way for a bit. In 1876, the agency was in dire financial straits and desperate for another chance to redeem its reputation and public standing after the James, you know, uh, gang blunder. And then the opportunity to help crush a large labor organization presented itself. The Pinkertons had worked sporadically in infiltrating uh, labor organizations or suppressing labor strikes for about a decade prior to this. But this next job would put them in the national spotlight, uh, you know. Uh, and by working for American Industrious, Alan Pinkerton rationalized it. He didn't think he was helping, you know, uh, capitalists, you know, crush workers. He, he he thought he was he was helping to uh, liberate and protect free labor. I don't know. I don't I don't think that's what's what was happening. I think people trying to get a fair wage were just fucking beat by the Pinkertons. In 1874, Alan had one of his agents go undercover to infiltrate the Molly Maguires, uh, which was a secret organization of predominantly Irish coal miners. Supposedly responsible for acts of terrorism, that may be propaganda, a lot of it, in the coal fields of Pennsylvania and West Virginia from 1862 to 1876. And in 1876, his assignment really paid off for him. Got a lot of, got a lot of uh, good exposure that led to a lot of uh, good paying gigs from this. Uh, the group, by the way, named itself after a widow, this Molly Maguire, who led a group of Irish anti landlord agitators in the 1840s. When poor working conditions and employment discrimination led to assassinations, and acts of sabotage by uh, Irish-American workers in Pennsylvania 20 years later, the Mollies, as they were called, were blamed. Um, also, the Ancient Order of Hiberians, which was a local Irish fraternal association, were then thought to be a front for the Molly Maguires, and mine owners hired the Pinkertons uh, who sent James McFarland to infiltrate this group, this order. And after a few months, McFarland did report back that some members of the uh, Ancient Order of Hiberians were indeed active regarding criminal activities uh, in, in this uh, Molly Maguire's secret organization. They were conspiring, you know, against the, uh, the, the factory owners. McFarland estimated that the group had about 3000 members and that each County was governed by a quote body master who recruited members and gave out orders to commit crimes. These body masters were usually ex miners who now worked as saloon keepers. Uh, over a two year period, McFarland collected evidence about the criminal activities of the Molly Maguire's. This included the murder of supposedly around 50 men in uh, Schoolkill, or Schoolkill, if you're from Philly County, uh, Pennsylvania, many of these men were the managers of coal mines in the region. So supposedly, you know, they're they're, they're killing uh, some of their bosses and stuff. John Kehoe, one of the leaders of the Molly Maguires, becomes suspicious of McFarlane, begins to investigate his past. And then McFarland is tipped off that Kehoe is planning to murder him, so he flees the area. And then in 1876 and 1877, McFarland is the star witness for the prosecution of John Kehoe and the Molly Maguires. 20 members end up being found guilty of murder and are executed. 20 people executed. When was the last time we had a criminal kind of a a trial comparable to that? Not in my lifetime. And how have I not heard of that before this suck? Craziness, man. Uh, 20 people sentenced to death. This uh, this included Kehoe, who was convicted of a murder that had taken place 14 years previously. But the trial was super controversial. Uh, Irish Catholics were excluded from being on the juror. Uh, while Protestant immigrants from Germany who couldn't even speak English were put on the the jury. Uh, Welsh immigrants who had for a long time been in mining conflicts with the Irish in in this area were also put on the jury. Most of the witnesses who provided evidence in the case uh, were men like McFarlane, who were on the payroll of the railroad and mining companies who were attempting to destroy the trade union movement. So it feels like it may have been a kangaroo court. Slight conflict of interest here. And various defendants were persuaded to turn state's evidence to help convict their alleged collaborators. So, th- this, this, uh, you know, group, this trade group may not have been that corrupt. They may have been just painted to be so and, uh, and given, yeah, this kangaroo court of a trial just to, uh, to push industrialist interests. And also, which makes me suspicious about this trial, was they did bring in a Polish judge to preside. Uh, and, and, you know, to be fair, this Polish judge had just been declared the smartest man in the history of Poland, but he still couldn't read or write in any language. Uh, he spoke mostly in a series of grunts and burps and farts and the Pinkerton supposedly told him to just sit there, kind of look for it, move your mouth up and down at, at you know, at certain points in the trial. And he was barely smart enough to do that. And then a Pinkerton agent would hide behind him and just speak for him. Like he was this weird puppet, you know, just Girlsie! They're all guilty. I'm a judge. I say guilty. Hang them. Hang them all. And then, then, you know, after you'd say that, like this big, dumb, Polish savage of a judge would just fucking bang his gavel. I'm a judge. And then fart and stuff, you know? So if you're a new listener, uh, my wife is Polish. And I can't tell you how happy it makes me to take uh, cheap jokes at her expense. Uh, I know it's dumb. I know they're dumb. But it makes me happy. It makes me smile. Uh, so okay. Anyway, though, everything else was real big financial victory for the Pinkertons here. Though they make a, they make a national name for themselves, get a lot of good press. Uh, you know, as being as being people capable of truly breaking the spirit of a huge labor organization, and who is that going to get the attention of? Every other major, uh, you know, factory owner or you know, like a railway owner, or whatever like that in the country. Anybody who's having a problem with their workers. Uh, anybody you know who who has a large business who is able to pay lots of money to have a strike end is going to hire the Pinkertons now. Uh, between 1872 and 1892, the Pinkertons took an active part, were hired to take an active part in at least 70 different major strikes. And more controversy came with a lot of their participation in these. Uh, like on July 1st, 1884, oh, sorry, not in this one. This, uh, now we're skipping to his uh, death. Uh, well, I will talk about at least uh, one more of these later in this in this episode. On July 1st, 1884, Alan Pinkerton died At the age of 64, uh, and there's a little speculation about how he died. This is, and I'm not making this up. It's usually said that Pinkerton slipped on some pavement and bit his tongue and that that resulted in gangrene. Good God. Gangrene of the tongue. I've never heard of that before. Uh, Now I have a new fear. Please, Nimrod, do do not let me die. Do not let me die of gangrene of the tongue. I think I would rather have gangrene of the dick than have gangrene of the tongue. What is worse than that? What's worse than gangrene of the tongue? Maybe gangrene of the eyes. Like if you had, if you had gangrene in each of your eyeballs. I think if, if you had gangrene in each of your eyeballs and your tongue and your dick, that might be the worst. That might be the worst way to go. And, I, and I'm gonna say this now. Listen up, meat sacks. If I ever contract gangrene of both eyeballs and tongue and dick, you have my permission to push me off the top of a very tall building and or cliff uh, into a burning pit of swords, perhaps, uh, just make sure I die. I just want to die very quickly at that, at that point. Anyway, uh, contemporary reports though, they give other possible causes such as, uh, he succumbed to a stroke. He had, he did have a stroke a year earlier or maybe to malaria, which he had contracted during a trip to the, to the South, uh, previously. So hopefully it was malaria or a stroke. Both sound way less horrific than gangrene of the tongue, just a rotting tongue in your mouth. You'd smell it all the time. You'd taste your rotting flesh. There'd probably be a couple of spiders walking around, you know, a couple of Roanoke recluse spiders just walking around your tongue, just eating your rotten tongue. I want you to think about that when you're trying to go to bed tonight. At the time of his death, Alan Pinkerton was working on a system to centralize all criminal identification records, which we spoke about earlier. You know, they were building the very first criminal database, uh, a database now maintained by the FBI. Uh, his agency did live on, continued to grow after his death. By the 1890s, Pinkerton's National Detective Agency had 2,000 active agents, 30,000 reserves. Uh, that's when they had that huge army that made everybody nervous, you know? it caused the state of Ohio to actually outlaw the agency due to the possibility of them being hired as a private army. Uh, in 1892, the Pinkertons found themselves in a very dramatic battle with a labor union in Homestead, Pennsylvania. This is crazy. Henry C. Frick, general manager of the homestead plant that Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie largely owned, uh, was determined to cut wages and break the amalgamated association of iron and steel workers spirit, right? uh, This was the nation's largest steelmaker, its largest craft union. Uh, Despite uh, Carnegie's public pro-labor stance, Carnegie did support Frick's plans behind the scenes. And in the spring of 1992, Carnegie had Frick produce as much armor plate as possible before the union's current contract was set to expire at the end of June. And then if the union failed to accept Frick's new terms, Carnegie instructed him to shut down the plant uh, and just wait until the the workers folded. Uh, well, to protect the non-union workers he planned to hire, uh, you know, get some scabs, take these jobs, Frick turned to some enforcers he had previously employed, the Pinkertons. Uh, he wanted to, uh, to bring them to their big private police force, uh, to protect, you know, uh, non-union workers going in for less pay than the union workers would want. Well, 300 armed Pinkerton detectives rowed ashore uh, at Andrew Carnegie's Homestead Mill on July 6, 1892. They, uh, they come up this up the water there, uh, uh, and they had no idea of the extreme violence with which the locked-out Steelwalkers were going to greet them. Tugboats pulled barges uh, carrying the Pinkerton detectives armed with Winchester rivals up the Mononga, Mononga, Monongahela, this, this is a fucking crazy ass word, Monongahela, there we go, up the Monongahela River, a worker station along the river spotted the private army. A Pittsburgh journalist wrote at about 3 a.m., a, quote, horseman riding at breakneck speed dashed into the streets of Homestead, giving the alarm as he sped along. Well, when the private armies arrived, the Pinkertons arrived, the crowd warned the, uh, the Pinkertons not to step off the barge. But they did, and then a hail of stones and then bullets ripped through the air. Uh, Some of the workers were armed, uh, you know, uh, mayhem breaks out. Steelworker William Foy and the captain of the Pinkertons both fall wounded. No one knows who shot first, but under a barrage of fire, the Pinkertons retreat back to their barges. And then for 12 hours, a fierce battle rages between the two sides. Outgunned by the Pinkertons' Winchester rifles, Homestead citizens scour the town for weapons uh, they press into service, everything from ancient muzzle loaders to a random 20 pound cannon that some of them hauled over to the river's edge. And they start shooting this cannon at the Pinkertons. Uh, and check this out. Some of the strikers rolled a flaming freight train car down the bank, trying to hit one of the barges and catch it on fire. Can you imagine if that shit was happening in Pennsylvania today? Getting 24 seven news coverage. That'll be the highest rated news event of my lifetime. People rolling a burning fucking train car to, down, down a bank. Towards a group of 300 well-armed private security guards shooting at uh, people trying to work at a mill, uh, you know, people firing cannons. The uh, the, the, the steelworkers uh, tossed dynamite into the river, tried to sink the boats. They pumped oil in the river and tried to set the river on fire. Uh, a local hardware merchant donated his entire stock of ammunition, uh, which workers started carrying to the mill in wheelbarrows. Uh, wheelbarrows uh, as workers built barricades on shore. The Pinkertons cut rifle ports into the sides of their barges. News of the battle reached nearby Pittsburgh, and by 6 a.m., five thousand curious spectators lined the riverbanks to watch this stuff go down. Just a just a bunch of people on a riverbank eating snacks, drinking some drinks, watching a show. A battle raging between steelworkers and security guards, like a real military battle. Four times uh, the Pinkertons raised a literal white flag, and four times some sharpshooter on the factory workers' side shot the flag down. Uh, Nope, not ready yet. Not ready to stop fighting. 5 p.m. The workers finally accept the Pinkerton surrender. By that time, nearly a dozen people were dead. Uh, the workers declared victory in the bloody battle, uh, but it was a short-lived celebration. Public sympathy for the union eroded by the brutal treatment of the Pinkertons declined uh, further when anarchist Alexander Berkman, unconnected to the union, attempted to kill Frick, right the guy who kind of uh, uh, you know pushed to hi- the guy who hired the Pinkertons. Uh, Frick is, gets seriously wounded, but recovers and then becomes more determined to win. He says, if I will fight this thing to the bitter end, I will never recognize the union. Never, never. So these guys don't get their jobs back. Homestead mayor, honest John McLuckie, like all labor years, uh, like all labor leaders, excuse me, despise the Pinkertons saying our people as a general thing, think they are a horde of cutthroats, thieves and murderers and are the, uh, in the employ of unscrupulous capitalists for the oppression of honest labor. Hated by laborers nationwide, the Pinkertons, uh, uh, you know, uh, get even more hated and ultimately Homestead turned popular sentiment against Pinkertonism as it was called in the seven years after the Homestead battle, 26 different States passed laws, uh, against the hiring of outside guards in labor disputes. And after, uh, Homestead, the era of the Pinkertons, you know, really kind of comes to an end, even though they still operate as a private security firm today. And sadly, like in that battle, yeah, both sides lost you know the union workers they didn't get after fucking waging that crazy battle the the steel mills not bringing them back and then the pinkertons because of all the bad press of them attacking these steel workers they uh they lose kind of all public sympathy for their organization so so both sides lose in that battle uh so at the dawn of the 20th century let's hop out of this timeline and let's highlight some uh some of how the pinkertons advanced law enforcement investigative techniques good job soldier You've made it back, barely. Okay, so the so the Pinkertons started off as a group tracking down counterfeiters. Uh, they evolved to catch people committing mail fraud. Uh, they pioneered undercover work to keep Abraham Lincoln safe prior to the Civil War, and they worked for the Union in the Civil War, furthering their undercover skills. They grew in size and organization. They were hired to uh, kind of try and tame a little bit of the Wild West. Catch train robbing gangs and other Western uh, outlaws. They did apprehend many. It wasn't like like they just had the one victory with the Reno gang and the one failure with the Jesse James gang. There was a lot of other lesser known gangs and bandits that they did apprehend. And that if it wasn't for them, no one would apprehend. Uh, they amassed the largest collection of mugshots ever gathered in the nation. Uh, you know, as they began to compile that national criminal database, which did not exist before them. Uh, Alan Pinkerton was working on the nation's, you know, first database when he died, like I said, uh, when he started his detective agency, America didn't have any of that, you know, as I was just saying, and they, and they did all this prior to the secret service CIA or FBI existing. And, uh, and what else did they do? Well, they hired the world's first female detective, Kate Warren, excuse me, in 1856, uh, seeing a woman in the, in the Pinkerton detective agency offices in 1856, Alan Pinkerton assumed that Kate was looking for a secretary job. Nope. The young widow corrected him. Said she was actually responding to an ad that he had placed in a local Chicago newspaper looking for a new detective. And he hired her, which is very atypical for the times. So, again, man, young Alan Pinkerton. I know it gets a little, you know, when he was going against, you know, a lot of kind of union workers and stuff later in life. It uh, tar- tarnishes his legacy a little bit. But early in life, he was a big social justice warrior. He was an abolitionist. And he fought for uh, for women's rights. He was, you know, he had no, he ended up hiring numerous female detectives. And, uh, and this Kate especially kicked ass. Hail Lucifina. In 1858, for example, Kate uh, gained the uh, confidence of Ms., Mrs. Uh, Maroney, whose husband had stolen $50,000 from the Adams Express Company Equity Fund. And then uh, from chats with the wife, Warren gathered a good deal of the evidence needed to convict Mr. Maroney, who returned more than 30000 of the stolen cash and was then sentenced to 10 years in prison. She also went undercover with Allen in Baltimore to help sniff out that Lincoln uh, assassination info. She adopted a thick Southern accent, uh, transformed herself—she was from New York originally—transformed herself into, into Mrs. Cherry or Mrs. M. Balle, a rich and flirtatious Southern lady in town to socialize as uh, classy secessionist gatherings. Uh, the plan, the party partygoers uh, party told Mrs. Cherry was to kill Lincoln on his way to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration. So then, you know, she passed that information along to uh, to Pinkerton, which is getting his own information— and then she also uh helped sneak Lincoln off the train in Washington, D.C. The Pinkertons disguised Lincoln as her invalid brother, made him stoop over with a cane, threw a big coat over him, and uh, and then two detectives on the train with him walk him, you know, out when they get to DC to sneak him into the into the White House. And those are Alan Pinkerton and Kate Warren. Uh, she'd pose as Pinkerton's wife while collecting crucial military intelligence for Major George McClellan throughout the Civil War, risked her life doing that, you know, became Mrs. Potter. Uh, coasted co- confession out of her murderer's wife in Mississippi she became Lucille a fortune teller who unveiled a plot to poison a man named Captain Sumner she became Kay, Kitty and Angie and uh and, and a lot of other names that historians are uh probably don't even know about right they, they don't know exactly how much she did because uh, a lot of the records weren't kept because they were you know so secretive. Uh, so yeah, very cool that that he gave her, her, her starts. In, In addition to pioneering undercover work for American law enforcement, he also created the concept of criminal surveillance in America. Pinkerton would call it shadowing. Uh, obviously this is something that, you know, police investigators, you know, use a lot today did not exist prior to Alan Pinkerton. Uh, shadowing was his, uh, his process of conducting surveillance on a known target or location, recording everything so that a theme would emerge from the analysis. Uh, also prior to Pinkerton, you, you couldn't hire a private investigator in America. They did not exist. There was no FBI tracking the movements of some criminal from state to state prior to the Pinkertons. You had to do that shit yourself. You had to grab a gun and go get them. And if you need them, you can still hire them today. So thanks for voting in that topic space. Lizards. I, I learned the most I've ever learned about, uh, law enforcement. We have a lot of police officers who listen to suck. Hopefully I didn't fuck it up too bad. Uh, thank you guys for existing. Uh, thanks for being there for the rest of us, you know, to call when we need help. Never really thought about what life would be like with no law enforcement and didn't think about how that was reality for most people, uh, for most of human history. And I know that that the media sensationalizes the most negative cases. I've talked about this with a lot of law enforcement officers where something bad happens and, uh, you know, an officer shoots somebody they're not supposed to, treats somebody badly when they're not supposed to, and then that just turns into media uproar, you know, and as it should in certain cases. But what gets lost in that is the many, 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 many officers who just kick ass at their jobs and keep the rest of us safe. And I'm thankful that we can call them. I'm thankful that we don't have just the system of like, hey, he stole my biscuit, he did. I stole Don's biscuit. Someone get the biscuit thief. I, I prefer the uh, the police method much better. Uh, so it's time for four more looks back at what we've already learned and, and some really cool, I think, some cool local additional info in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, ancient Egyptian security forces actually used trained chimps or baboons, yeah, depending on how you look at the drawing, uh, to help capture criminals. Right, baboons. Uh, you know, someone please invent a time machine. Go back and record these baboons catching someone and then come back, post it on YouTube, and crash the entire internet. Uh, number two, for a good portion of European history, there were no police, and the equivalent of calling the police was yelling out something illegal that had occurred and hoping enough neighbors continued to yell until someone was caught. The world's not getting worse, it's getting better. Number three, Alan Pinkerton created America's very first and one of the world's first detective agencies in 1850, introduced undercover investigations, criminal surveillance, armed security detail for high-ranking political figures, uh, the concept of a national criminal database, and more into the American criminal justice system. You couldn't call 911 in the mid to late 19th century, but if you had a criminal problem that needed to be dealt with and, and a little bit of dough, you could hire the Pinkertons. Uh, Number four, the Pinkertons made the most money, but also gained the most unfavorable press and and, and tarnished their legacy the most uh, and actually led the deeds that led to their downfall as America's preeminent law enforcement agency by infiltrating labor unions and labor gangs and breaking up strikes by any means necessary, including essentially declaring war on some steelworkers in Homestead, Pennsylvania. Uh, Number five, new info. I love finding this. The Pinkertons were involved in a major historical incident right here in little old Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, home of the Suck Dungeon. Uh, We've talked about how the, you know a lot about how the Pinkertons you know both heralded and hated, and how about most of their hate you know came to do with uh, supporting big business owners, opposition to labor unions. Well, uh, the writings of Pinkerton detective Charlie Seringo uh, provide a unique view into the mentality of Pinkerton detectives who uh, who fought the union. Seringo was dispatched. To a conflict between mine owners and labor unions in northern Idaho in 1892, Charlie Stringer was a pal of Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, B- uh, Pat Garrett. A lot of those people from the Doc Holiday suck. Uh, a man who had infiltrated Butch Cassidy and the Sundance uh, and the Sundance Kid's Wild Bunch. Uh, he was a famous Pinkerton agent, and he and he didn't generally work on their labor union cases. He was known for his support of the working man, but the agency needed a, a, a star agent to help deal with some some shit going down in northern Idaho. Some strikes needed to be dealt with. And he went out to Northern Idaho and went to, went to Coeur d'Alene with the stipulation that he didn't have to do anything he disagreed with. Well, the Coeur d'Alene Mine Owners Association put 1600 miners out of work by shutting down the mines in the Silver Valley, uh, Silver Valley stretches, you know, Northeast of Coeur d'Alene, almost to Montana, uh, while they battled the railroads who were demanding higher fees for shipping ore. Uh, I've driven through the Silver Valley many, many times. Love it. Little mining town of Wallace, one of my favorite little towns in all of America. Uh, when the mines opened up three months, uh, again, months later, excuse me, the owners refused to recognize the mining union and the miners refused to go back to work. And then non-union workers, you know, scabs were brought in and the fight was on. Uh, Seringo met with mine owners who had called him in, eventually joined the labor union. What he found was that the, the head of the union was, in, in his words, a true blue anarchist, a man named George Pettibone. Once he saw what labor unions were doing, he decided that it wasn't immoral to bust them up. Uh, while the popular opinion was that the labor unions represented the hardworking downtrodden every man who was being taken advantage of, Siringo wrote about how they did some pretty horrific things. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, those those that broke the strike, for instance, were dragged from their homes and shown their way out of the state of Idaho and encouraged to head that way and keep heading you know, out of the state by gunfire. It became clear to any that anyone who opposed the union was destined for the same sort of treatment. Those who joined the union swore to remain loyal to it or face death for betrayal. And Seringo, when he finally was recognized as a Pinkerton, found out they weren't kidding. He was captured by union members. The lynch mob decided to deal out some vigilante justice and kill him. He was supposed to be burned at the stake, they were going to burn him alive. But he managed to escape union custody. And then to bring the labor war to an end, Idaho governor Norman B. Uh, Willie declared martial law, sent in the National Guard, and then president, U.S. President Benjamin Harrison, dispatched federal troops to northern Idaho to quell the fighting, to quell the uprising. That's crazy to me, somebody who lives here. Uh, yeah. And then it so it, it was it was squashed. Uh, Charlie Stringer was appointed as a United States deputy marshal, given the men he needed to put an end to the Idaho bloodshed in the name of fairness. And he ended up arresting about 300 union men. And the whole thing ended up in 18 convictions, little Northern Idaho chapter to the tale of the Pinkertons. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that's it. The Pinkertons sucked. Uh, I know I was a little bit all over the place on that one. I had a hard time figuring out what portions of the story to leave out, what portions to leave in. Uh, you know, I thought about just telling more of like a straight tale of of just the Pinkertons, but... Honestly, it, it became a, a little repetitive. I felt where it's like you know you get some highlights about uh, some 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 stagecoach robberies or whatever. That's pretty cool. But then after a while, especially when you get into that you know kind of strike busting phase, I don't want to I don't want to talk you know forty stories of like and then and then they went into this strike and then they busted it up again and then they did this thing again and then this thing again and then this thing again. So I thought it'd be uh, more fun to bounce around and learn about some law enforcement history and then uh, kind of hit some Pinkerton highlights. Hope you liked it. Uh, hope the spaces who voted it in liked it. Uh, thanks again to the Time Suck team, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse, Guardian of Grammar, Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Space Lizards and Merch Wizards, Axis Ale- Apparel, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, and huge thanks to OG Bojangles Research Department Assistant, Heather Knowledge, Ninja Rylander. And congrats, big congrats to Harmony and Alex. Uh, for welcoming little Space Newt Charlie into the world at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, November 27th. Uh, she was born 7 pounds, 4 ounces, 20 inches long, adorable, and healthy. So happy to you two. Hail Nimrod. Hail Safina. May they both watch over your little Space Newt. Uh, next week, we stick with American history. Uh, don't worry, we will get to more true crime again, I promise. But next week, it's time to time to suck Harriet motherfucking Tubman. Harriet Tubman was the most famous conductor of the Underground Railroad. In a decade, she guided over 300 slaves to freedom. Abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison thought she deserved the nickname Moses. She worked hard to save money to return and save more slaves. She was born a slave in Maryland in 1820, escaped when she was almost 30 in 1849. And during the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, cook, laundress, spy, and scout. She lived to be over 90 years old, lived a hell of a life, in those nine decades, she killed, a, uh, she killed a family of pandas with her bare hands once in uh, China. She uh, she karate kicked a Sasquatch into a parallel dimension when she was 45, and she invented the Easy Bake Oven. No, she didn't do that stuff, but she did, she did cooler stuff, really. Uh, she did a lot of cool shit, and you should know more about her, and you will next week. Time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. A lot of cool updates being sent in. Uh, if yours didn't make it in, it's not because we don't care. Just a lot of stuff coming in, uh, which is fantastic. Very appreciative. First update today is about how the suck changed someone's life, and this is from Crystal Troner. Crystal writes, "Dear Dan, the magnificent leader of the Space Lizards, I've been uh, uh, I've been listening to the podcast since about June of this year, and I finally caught up. I know there's a lot of hours out there. I fucking blab a lot. Uh, I made a deal with myself that when I was done, I would become a Space Lizard. So coming soon. Sweet." I also decided not to email you until I got to this point. I saw you last January at the Zanies and Rosemont, AKA it's not fucking Chicago. I know. You know why I say that? Because I feel like people from surrounding areas sometimes who might come to Chicago, if they just hear like a a suburb name, they might be like, well, where's that? So I'll just say the the main city, but you're right. I know it's not not technically Chicago. Okay. And was not yet listening to any podcast. So I really dragged my feet about starting to listen to yours. So glad I did. At the beginning, I would be nervous about listening to certain episodes because the subject matter made me uncomfortable. Or I just had no interest, but I listened anyway and wound up being so glad. Hey, uh, not only did I learn more about something I didn't have any curiosity about originally, but I found out that it was actually super interesting that I, me as well. Some topics that get picked, I'm like, I don't know about this, but I was like them. I just wanted you to know that listening to the bonus episode number 10 was a uniquely challenging experience for me. It was like a call to action. I had been debating about quitting my job, moving away from a large city for a small town and just shaking shit up. You inspired me to start looking. Oh, yeah. And for those of you who haven't, bonus episode 10 was when I I talk about my story. That's the suck, sucks itself. Uh, uh, Yeah, you inspired me to start looking. In September, I did. I quit my job. I took the month of October off, moved to a truly tiny fucking town in Tennessee, (laughs) and I'm starting my new life here. I really am grateful that listening to the suck and all the updates from the different time suckers gave me the courage to just fucking do it. You have truly created something special here where I feel like there's a chance that I'll meet random suckers out there. Yeah. The odds are increasing all the time. I will say on that, I do get recognized more and more all the time. And I'm not saying that it's like, oh look at me way. It's all from time suck. Always, 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 always. And it makes me feel so good. Uh, and, uh, I'll meet random suckers out there and have something in common with them immediately. I know you're proud of the community you've created, but I just wanted you to know that you have really positively impacted this sucker's life. And have kept me company on several long fucking drives from Chicago to Eastern Tennessee. Thank Christ. I had your mush mouth. God, it, my mush mouth was on fire today Uh, for company, especially when I discovered the localist chain of Bojangles. Yeah, man. Some biscuits, Uh, which specializes in chicken and biscuits, the meeting place of chicken Joe and Bojangles. Bah, bah play boy. Hey, Lucifina, give Bojangles a good pet for me and keep on sucking. Crystal Troner. Oh, Crystal makes me so happy. Makes me so happy. I'm so glad you know, I, obviously, you know, as this thing expands, yes, it can help me like financially, but I swear that it's such a passion project. I, this stuff fires me up more than anything else. Just create, building a community where, where people, uh, you know, they have something in common immediately to, when they meet somebody else, uh, they tend to be, uh, of a similar ilk. They are able to start friendships that that stuff is starting to happen more. I love people meeting at shows and things and cool, man. Uh, Okay. Kick-ass Hatfield-McCoy message from Logan County sucker Anthony Hogfolk-Stalins. Anthony writes, just wanted to say how much I enjoyed the Hatfield-McCoy suck. I'm from Logan County, West Virginia, so I've heard about the feud my entire life. Uh, But of course, hearing it from you, the time suck away was the best portrayal anyone could ask for. Wow, I'm sure some people disagree, but I thank you. I'm From a little town in West Virginia, Coalfield, it's called Man. Yes, the town is called Man. I think I've heard of that, Man, West Virginia. Our high school mascot is the hillbilly. A goat. No, I'm not making this up. You talked about the Logan Wildcats, Confederate militia group. Well, the Logan High Wildcats are also the county rival of my man high hillbillies. Ha! Ah, hilarious, man. Little nods to the, the history there. Yeah, the Scottish hillbillies. Just wanted to say, being from such a town and hearing you talk about this area was so awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed it as I do all the sucks. You're awesome. Keep it up. P.S. Go Hawk Folk! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Go Hawk Folk! Uh, thank you, man. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I appreciate that, Anthony. Pronunciation update: Yes, from uh, from somewhat furious time sucker Anthony Thornton, who writes in all caps: "Jesus tap dancing Christ." It's pronounced "Lusitania," Dan. I'm probably still saying it wrong. Lus i t nia, Lusitania, Lusitania. The sinking of the Lusitania. Is one of the most significant maritime incidents of the early 20th century. And I want to punch my own ears every time you mangle the pronunciation. Sorry, sorry. Got a little carried away there. I still love you. You stand up in your podcast. Maybe someday you can make your way to the wilds of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and do some on-site research about a dark time in American history, the Tulsa race riots. Okay. Okay. And do a show. Also, I like how now if someone says you suck, it's a compliment. Keep up the suck. Ah, uh, thank you, man. I know I, I know my pronunci- pronunciation updates are infuriating. I really do. I don't do it to be uh, endearing. I'm like, oh, it's a fun thing now. We should just keep it. I swear I try my hardest to pronounce words in life correctly. Uh, I get made fun of at home a lot for this too. Yeah, part of my brain's probably missing, uh, but I'm working on it. Uh, finally, a beautiful update from Green Beret. Uh, I think it's actually pronounced Green Barrett. Uh, Joe Paisley told me today it's Green Barrett. Uh, it's Green Barrett update from <laughs> it's Green Beret, Green Beret, humanitarian, beautiful meat sack, greenberetassociation.org. The association we gave some money to this month. Thanks to Spaces, senior executive officer and wonderful time sucker, Nick Merrick. Love Nick. Uh, Nick writes, Dan and Lindsay, uh, for, yeah, my wife, sucks. Uh, she's also on this message. First off, we have to say thank you for highlighting our nonprofit on the podcast and what a great one to host it on. Mm-hmm, that World War 1. Yep. Uh the donations could not have come at a better time sadly. As you and many of your listeners know, we recently lost 3 US uh, SOF personnel, t- two Green Berets and an Air Force combat controller. The donations made by you and the Colt Curious are going directly to help CPT uh to uh, CPT Ross, SFC at uh Emmond and SSGT Elich's families. We are also seeking to help the other four members of the team that were wounded that day. And it would be far more difficult to accomplish without the support of everyone that helped. Again, thank you and all of the humble servants of Nimrod for your support. Uh, yeah, man, uh, I know it's, you know, I wish, I wish we could do so much more, but I'm glad I'm glad we could give a little bit to help of truly very, very, very worthy cause. Uh, so sad. Uh, yeah, man, sorry for the loss of fellow servicemen. Uh, secondly, uh, a new world order update. I'm attaching a link to give a little humor to you. Uh, The link is to an Ogden News report about black military helicopters swarming uh, a downtown building in the middle of the night. It's downright funny having been on one of those helicopters to read what people thought or even recount what happened. In this age of information, it still amazes me how quickly people point to conspiracies, evil plots, or worst-case scenarios. I've been on numerous training missions around the U.S., and we always coordinate with local law enforcement. This prevents the overzealous Johnny Dugoods from grabbing their rifles and rushing and uh, and r- rushing armed an armed military unit who is actively preparing to deploy and defend their aforementioned Johnny Dugoods sometimes at the cost of their own lives. Who knows, though? Maybe I'm a member of the Lizard Illuminati and only telling this uh, to you so you'll let your guard down. Eyes to the sky, space lizards. Maybe that black helicopter is coming to an abandoned building near you. Sincerely, Bojangles personal pooper scooper, Nick. Uh, thank you, Nick. Man, I will check out those links soon. And uh, so the rest of you, you know, you you can easily Google uh Ogden Black Military Helicopters swarming downtown building. Uh thanks to all of you who wrote in. Uh hope you enjoyed, enjoyed today. Hope you look forward to uh, to Harriet Tubman and just uh continuing to, to learn uh, with the fun group of irreverent meat sacks. And that's it for today's time sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, Time Suckers. May Nimrod watch over you. Don't let a Pinkerton infiltrate your secret organization. And watch out for police monkeys. <laughs> or police chimps. Whatever. And keep on sucking. Can I go to sleep now? Or do I got to keep drinking this weird keto liquid cocaine in my cup?